Production. Recorded live. Hey there, welcome to Podcast Winterfell. It's episode 230 of the podcast. This week we are once again covering spoiler-free news for our TV-only people. And we are in our 27th and final week of our tandem read of George R. R. Martin's A Feast for Crows and Tan- A Dance with Dragons for our book people. My name is Matt Murdock. I am from podcastwinterfell.com. That's, of course, where you can find all of the back episodes of the podcast. You can find our social media and contact links, as well as podcatcher links. And I would love it if you, yourself, would take time to leave me a review, either on iTunes or Stitcher, of the written kind, just as original Sam Shoe did in the U.S. iTunes store, and Hoopla underscore Matt from the U.K. iTunes store. Thank you guys very much for your review. Uh, do want to issue just, again, a real quick warning to anybody who might be in our chat room who is not reading along with us as far as the book stuff goes, that after we get through the news, which is, of course, TV-friendly, uh, then I'm going to give you a warning to bail out, and then we will be getting into TV spoilerific territory. So you won't want to stick around for that if you don't want to be spoiled. Um, but uh, that's something that really won't be you know, that much of an issue here in a couple of weeks when we start our fan call-in shows, which uh, they're going to start happening every Monday night after a new episode of Game of Thrones airs. And we're actually going to go the Monday before the premiere of the episode, of the first episode, to find out from our fans what they expect or what they predict from the TV show for Season 5, we will try and keep this NVR friendly when we do our expectation show. We don't want people calling in saying, well, I expect this exactly to happen from the books. We don't want us to do that because we don't want to spoil any of our TV people. But if you have any comments about you know, whether, you, whether you're excited about anything that you've uh, seen from the promotional material of Game of Thrones Season 5 or whatever, feel free to call in. And uh, you can call in on April 6th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time at 724-444-7444, then you'll be asked for a call ID by a pretty little female voice, and you will dial 11-8884 and the pound sign. And finally, you'll be asked for a PIN number. And if you're not a TalkShoe member, don't worry about it. Just simply dial 1 and the pound sign, and you will be added to the callers. We take uh, every caller that calls in, and again, as long as you keep your comments NBR friendly, then you will definitely be included in the final product of the show. I do treat it kind of like a radio talk show where, you know, like a host just takes uh, opinions from different callers and such. And I take them in the order that I see them come in. So uh, call in quickly, again, 9 p.m. Eastern Time on April 6th. Ah. That makes me excited. I'm excited to talk about uh, the upcoming season with all of our fans for the Fan Call-In Show. I'm also super excited to talk to our panelists about this week's news and chapters. So let's get them in here with me. First, we want to bring in, once again, from the Captain Punishment Adventure Hour, Mr. Mike Hall. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Uh, Obviously, it was a big week in BR world, at least podcast Winterfell BR world. Glad to be here. Yeah, uh, it's great to have you back, and uh, great to be excited to talk about everything with you here coming up pretty soon. Um, how about uh, we bring in also uh, our returning panelist and song, a Song of Ice and Fire uh, enthusiast and fan and expert, even though she doesn't like to be called so. Susan, welcome back. Thank you, Matt. You made it to the end there, huh? 
We made it to the end. Can you believe it? Uh, all of the, I look at these books stacked one on top of the other, and I keep thinking, wow, we read all of that. And we struggled <laughs> over a half a year it took us to read it. <laughs> so what do you tell? Uh, I'm sure lots of people went through that material a lot faster. For instance, Bubba, who probably skipped ahead through about three-fourths of these things. We're talking about Bubba from the Joffrey of Podcast. Matt. Is this tandem read ever going to end? Please, God. Please let these chapters end. How much words do I have to read? It just won't end. I mean, mean, unless you want to do a podcast covering the appendices, then I think we're going to be done after this week, Bubba. That's what you say, but words are wind. Words are wind. (laughs) Words are wind. I have to keep saying it as many times as he types it. Words are wind. Oh, my Lord, please, God. Oh. Oh, so great to be back with all our friends on Podcast Winterfell. Great to have you back, Bubba. And here comes the news. Uh, recently, HBO UK threw up a Game of Thrones quiz that tests fans' knowledge of the show with a series of multiple-choice questions. None were particularly difficult, but there was a time limit uh, on each one that added a little bit of an extra challenge. If you scored more than 5,000 points... Uh, on the quiz, and you were entered into a lottery to win a Game of Thrones Complete Seasons 1-4 through DVD box set, uh, a seven-volume set of A Song of Ice and Fire book series, and a selection of limited character illustrations by artist Ollie Moss, who previously drew characters from the series uh, as rendered in a cute little figurine form. The uh, second red carpet event of the uh, Game of Thrones premiere tour uh, for Season 5 was also tonight, March 23rd, at San Francisco, and they live-streamed some of their stuff, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. It was held at the War Memorial Opera House is where the premiere uh, started, and uh, you could access the red carpet stream on Ustream or via the Game of Thrones Facebook page. Um, Mike, did you see any of the streaming going on? I watched a few minutes of it, but it just made me too upset. I had to stop. You had to stop? Well, what upset you so much about it? I'm just pure, unadulterated jealousy. I'd like to make it sound like it was more, you know, intellectual or mature than that, but it wasn't. It was just pure teenage jealousy. (laughs) Uh, Did you have any part that you felt was a favorite or that maybe made you more jealous than others? I mean, the, the I don't know if you're familiar with the, the location that they're at, but, I mean, after seeing, you know, the episodes uh, in the IMAX, I, I, it just, you know, I don't know. Like, I had never thought about watching them outside of my own living room, you know, but just the, the location of it is just a really beautiful spot. And uh, I just I wish I got invited to the party, but I didn't. Yeah, we're not of that highest status yet. Not even Bubba is of that highest. Actually, he is. He just had to refuse because he was going to be on this podcast instead. And we thank him for making that sacrifice. But Bubba, what were your impressions of the stream, brother? Uh, to be honest, I didn't get to watch much. Mond- mandatory here in the chat room, he said it was like watching an episode, this stream, because there was lots of violence and full frontal. But uh, for me, <laughs> I think I should have... I should have attended it because, as I was saying earlier, if it, if Gilly had seen me standing next to Sam, let's just say uh, that showmance would be over. 
<laughs> the wildling would the wildling would convert with a real educated man. And a bigger craven, I should point out. <laughs> hey, nothing like having a bigger craven on your side, right? Bigger craven. I, uh, I, I do what I can. You know, it's, it, it so, it's so fun seeing everybody in their normal clothes and not their costumes and seeing everybody so enthused. I think they're excited about this upcoming season. I know we should be, too. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I love the uh, the talk with Dave and Dan. They're holding the line. They're not really giving anything away that much, but uh, they, they, they seem... Uh, I, w- I was surprised. They had never really seemed that stressed to me, and they talked about the stress levels that they sometimes go through as, as a season is shot or as they're waiting for a new season to air, um, especially since they they'd kind of set this plateau as if we get to the Red Wedding, we know we'll have accomplished something. Um, <laughs> Dave... Uh, I, I don't know if it was just off the cuff or if he was if he was semi serious, but he said, you know, I'd like to stop, have to stop taking anxiety pills. I feel kind of bad for those guys. It, it, I'm sure with the the kind of fandom, fandom that this show has, there's got to be a lot of pressure, right? There's lots of pressure, and just because they're paranoid, I am watching them. Ah. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, why don't we move on to uh, another thing that premiered today, and that was a a video game trailer, uh, the third of six editions of the Telltale Games uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, will be coming out soon on all the platforms, and the third edition is called A Sword in the Darkness, and uh, they released their trailer today for that. Um, I'm not sure which of us have seen it or not, or if, if they're Bubba, I know at one point you said you might even get into these games uh, just because you thought the trailers were so great. Did you see the trailer today? I haven't seen the new trailer, but I have played the first two games they've released, and and I think it's great. I think it's uh, it's really awesome. I think they're even if you're not a gamer, and I am not a gamer, I have better things to do with my life, like record podcasts. Dear Lord, these never end. But <laughs> I think anybody who likes the show, who likes this world, would really like these games. Uh, they're simple, they're fun, and they're engaging. Very good. Uh, Mike, did you happen to check out the trailer? I did. Uh, I mean, it's a pretty cool little trailer. I'm not entirely... I don't totally understand what the game actually consists of, though. It seemed, the trailer is just a lot of people kind of talking, and it really seemed like it was almost an animated trailer for the show, kind of. I mean, I know better than that, but it no, just wasn't... No, to be honest, that's the best description of it. It's a bit like a choose-your-own-adventure animated version of an episode, yeah. And so, what, what is, uh, is there, like, do you fight? Or, I don't know, what's the video game element of it? Uh, well, you do fight, uh, but it's it's kind of minimal. It's a bit like the show. These bits of violence start up, but uh, it's not it's not overwhelming. And it's really kind of character driven. Like, uh, is your character gonna let this person get away? You always have the choice to not fight. It's it's really kind of fun. All I really want to know is whether or not I get to be Oberyn in the brothel. <laughs> That's an expansion pack. You've got to pay extra for that. <laughs> and you better have some good graphic processing. Let me put it that way. But uh, no, you play uh, new game-only characters, but you interact with many characters, so it's uh, pretty fun. Yeah, it was fun to see uh, one of one of these uh, one of the the, the POVs in the game is uh, evidently at odds with Cersei about uh, being in service of Tyrion. Um, and and uh, another one is, uh, I guess, seemingly an Essos facing off with a dragon, and another one is 
north of the wall on some kind of secret mission to find the grove or, or, or something like that or to protect the grove, it would seem, by the way, all of that soon. So I haven't played any of the games, but I, I've been following the trailers and just been catching little hints of the story or where it might lead. And it, you it know, does seem you know, kind of Matt, exciting. Matt, we have to, may have to divide up Podcast Winterfell between uh, G's and NG's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gamers and non-gamers. It may have very well have to go to that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Susan, did you watch the trailer? I did watch the trailer, and uh, I've seen all the trailers, and they do look like like it would be a lot of fun. I am not a gamer at all, so I guess my concern would be how much skill I would have to have to do it. But uh, it sounds like uh, you can choose not to fight, and maybe I'd be able to handle it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, something else that came out online today, uh, as we, again, we're recording on March 23rd, um, the Oxford Union released a video um, just earlier today uh, that was a roundtable with uh, Dave and Dan and Kit Harrington and John Bradley. Um, it had lots of kind of convention-y type questions in it as well, as you would expect a bunch of Game of Thrones fans to ask of the actors and, and the writers uh, but there was some interesting also like book versus show discussion. We'll talk more about that in the book section. Um, one thing that I found very interesting though that I think we can talk on, about here is uh, it was revealed, uh, I think by Dave, that he and Dan had signed on to write and direct uh, an adaptation of, of Stephen Hunter's Dirty White Boys, which is a novel, uh, basically saying that they don't want to be typecast in this kind of fantasy thing. Uh, I, I get. I'm assuming if you're a writer, you don't want to be typecast any more than you know, an actor does. So, uh, and Kit Harrington also said that, you know, he he didn't really well, want to do too much more of the fantasy thing. Which I thought it was funny that uh, I believe it was Dan that brought up oh Pompeii too, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, there was lots of interesting things on that. Bubba, is there any highlight from from any of that that you wanted to talk about? Just what we were talking about earlier before we started recording, the uh, John Bradley is a great voice. He's a great fan who just happens to play a character on the show. He's great on the DVD commentaries, and his enthusiasm really always gives you faith if you ever question uh, the direction of the show. He's great. Absolutely. Uh, Mike, any comments about the uh, about it? Well, I, I mean, I enjoyed it a lot, actually. Uh, and, you know, I think it's... It's a cool thing to watch. Like, you know, these guys are professional non-spoilers at this point, you know, so I feel like NBRs can watch it without any issues, right? I mean, they did get into some kind of discussions about the book TV show stuff, but I didn't really feel like there was any spoilers in it. I enjoyed watching it a lot. I, I thought that uh, Dan especially looked stressed. Uh, he, he, he was swirling the whiskey in his cup. Uh, but, you know, good for them. it was also nice to see them kind of talk about, you know, the books and, and their reverence for the books and for Railroad. And, you know, I really enjoyed kind of seeing that from their perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, Susan, did you manage to be able to take an hour out of your life today and watch the whole thing? It was over an hour long, which was great. I, I had watched it, and I really enjoyed it. And as Bubba said, I really enjoyed John Bradley. I always like listening to him. He's uh, a very, very interesting guy. Yeah, I agree. And you know what? Let's give Kit Harrington some credit. He he puts a lot of thought into his answers um, and um, answers honestly and, and, and probably 
if there was one kind of let's say book dissenter <laughs> among among the among the panel there, he he kind of was the guy that said you know because he had read all of the books. John Bradley has not, and uh, you know he was kind of a, a, for for a couple of moments there, he was kind of the voice of the of the book readers on a couple of things, which I thought was very interesting as well. Um, but uh, we'll talk more about specifically about book versus show and and what Dave and Dan said means for us as book readers in the book section. Um, Hopefully, you know, if you're into this kind of thing, of course, Game of Thrones is continuing to roll out the PR machine for this season. As Bubba tweeted to me earlier today, you're going to catch a lot of actors doing interviews and stuff to start to push the show over the next couple weeks. In fact, uh, tonight, as we record, Maisie Williams will be on Jimmy Kimmel Live um, and uh, David Benioff is appeared, uh, scheduled to appear, I think, Wednesday on the new uh, Late Night. And uh, there's also going to be Ian Glenn and, and Natalie Emanuel interviews out there that you can find, as well as interviews with the gentleman who plays Sir Barristan Salmi. You can find all kinds of stuff all over the web. I'm not going to offer any details here because there's just so much of it out there. For the most part, it just was with the, the Game of Thrones red carpet thing tonight. Uh, it seems like the actors keep things pretty much in check, but occasionally a spoiler might slip out here or there unintentionally. So just be real wary as you read you NBRs if you're super spoiler sensitive. But I think for the most part, uh, most of this PR machine is going to be safe for you. It's nothing that the show doesn't want you to see um, before you're watching the season anyway because they're wanting to entice you. So use your better judgment. And with that, uh, we're going to wrap up the news section. But before we do, Bubba had asked me to allow him to pose a question to all of you NBRs to think about. And if you want to call in with your answers for me uh, on April 6th, then feel free to do so. Um, Bubba, what's the point you wanted to bring up, sir? Well, uh, this weekend, HBO2 had a marathon of season one of Game of Thrones, and I was sitting there watching it, and they're going to do this for the coming week. So this coming weekend on HBO2, they're going to marathon season two and so on and so on to get everybody hyped and remember all the crazy things that happened over these 10 hours, uh, 40 episodes to go so far. But I was watching episode uh, something from season one, and I, I was thinking about it, and I wanted to pitch which people prefer, because I, I felt so strongly about it. I wanted to know what people liked the best. And so it was an episode where uh, we had, uh, I think it was the third episode of the first season, and we have Catelyn in Littlefinger's brothel, and she's finding out from Littlefinger varies uh, that the the dagger, which the assassin attacked Bran with, uh, Littlefinger says it was Tyrion's. Then we immediately cut from that to Castle Black, uh, where Tyrion is watching Jon fight uh, our first introduction to Gren and Pip and Rast there as he's uh, beating them up because he's castle trained and they aren't. Then we immediately cut from that scene back to King's Landing as Littlefinger walks by Ned and he's like, oh, you should tell this to your wife. And Ned says, well, my wife's in in Winterfell. And Littlefinger's like, oh, is she? Then we cut from that straight back to Castle Black and Jon Snow is in the uh, armory there and uh, the guys are going to beat him up because he beat them up in training and Tyrion comes in and stops him. But what I was I was in there watching it, it, it was cutting from location to location just like that. You know, they'd have a short scene in King's Landing, then cut to the wall, then cut back to King's Landing, cut to the wall. And the first season used to do that a lot. And I was thinking to myself, boy, I used to like it more like that back then. 
And I, I loved the jumping around. I thought it was interesting. It kept the show moving. And one thing that never really happened in the first season is characters would appear throughout the show. They wouldn't just suddenly appear in the last 10 minutes. But if you watch season four, Tyrion in multiple episodes, uh, the two I think of immediately are the eighth episode of season uh, four where uh, uh, Tyrion has the Mountain and the Viper trial. We don't see Tyrion in the episode at all until we're close to 45 minutes in. And then in the final episode, uh, we don't see Tyrion uh, right before he's released from prison to go kill Shay and his father. You know, we don't see Tyrion in that episode until over 50 minutes in because it was longer than an hour episode. And I was like, I wonder if one of the reasons I have trouble is that, yeah, you know, I've spent 50 minutes with other characters and now I have to jump back to him. And I was wondering a question for the fan call-in show, which is coming up. Which do you prefer? Do you prefer more of the season one editing style where they jumped around kind of scene by scene back and forth like I just explained? Or do you prefer like, hey, I'm in King's Landing. Let's do the King's Landing scenes. Then let's jump to the Eerie. Let's do the Eerie scenes. Which do you prefer? I said my preference. I don't know if anybody wanted to jump in with their own. Yeah, sure. Let's do that. Uh, Susan, do you have a preference in the way that the show did and presented? I um, I hadn't really thought a lot about it in that perspective, but I think I would agree with you, Baba. I like that idea of of it going back and forth, especially because the stories can be so interrelated. And so then, you know, like what you were saying, you know, something that is going on um, with Ned and in King's Landing, and then you go to the wall, well, it, you know, there, there can be a reflection of that, or it brings more perspective to it. Very good. Have, Mike, do you have an opinion on that, sir? Uh, I mean, I think that it kind of depends. It's interesting that he's pointing it out, you know, the Bubba's pointing out the difference between seasons, because I had noticed a difference kind of between the beginning of a season and, and more toward the end of a season, more about kind of what the scenes are, you know, how much action is happening at the same time, what's being set up, you know, what bows are being tied. I'd always thought about it more in that sense as opposed to a, you know, season-to-season difference. So uh, I, don't, I, I don't know that I have a, a specific preference. I think it more depends on kind of what version of the story is, you know, what part of the story is being told at that moment. Um, I probably could have used a little less wall, in uh, the end of season four, I probably could have used to jump around a little bit more. Um, but generally speaking, I think, you know, uh, I don't really mind the jumping too much. It doesn't bother me. Hold on. Um, for me, I think it, it kind of, as the story has expanded, I almost feel like you, you almost have to lump more together to, to reestablish what part of the world you're in, uh, in some ways. Now, I don't think that we needed, um, personally, I, I don't think we needed a six-minute speech about Beatles um, when, uh, as our friend Harold has pointed out, even, uh, and this is just simply from a TV perspective, that it would have been much nicer to get the reactions of, uh, you know, the other people at King's Landing in response to Oberyn deciding to champion Tyrion, you know. Um, but, uh, you definitely get the sense that the end is coming for Tyrion unless Oberyn succeeds. And so, um, I don't know, can, can, can you intersperse that kind of tension uh, throughout an episode uh, in order to, to get to the final fight with Oberyn and Mountain, which clearly has to be at the end of the episode? Um, so, 
there's sometimes when I think where the cutting back and forth uh, works really well in terms of interweaving things, but as the stories have become more spread out, and if you need to say what's happening in this place in a certain episode and you need to say what's happening in another place in the episode, um, maybe some of the storytelling capability is lost if you try and intercut it that way. But that's just my own personal taste. Um, so, and, and the fact that I'm a dummy and I don't follow leads through, or, you know, I don't piece things together very well as Bubba's math in our book sections have, have shown, demonstrated quite well. <laughs> anyway. Um, can, I add, my, can I add one uh, uh, aspect to this too? Yeah. One thing I do think is that um, two of the episodes that I enjoyed the most were the ones that did stay for an entire episode in one location being the black water and then this year the wall. So while I uh, agreed with what Bubba's saying, I, I like that moving around a little bit more, uh, that when they had a big story, I really enjoyed the fact that they took the time and just stayed right there. And I think they could do a little bit more of that, frankly. Well, uh, we'll have to see what season five brings and see which direction it takes. But folks, keep that question from uh, Bubba in mind when you uh, when you talk to me on April sixth about your expectations for season five. I think that's a great question, Bubba. And while we're at it, why don't you tell us that, uh, about the new Joffrey podcast that'll be coming out sometime in the near future? Uh, it goes really blue. It is adult content and supervision. We've got a new Joffrey we recorded this weekend. Catfish is back from New Orleans, where he was filming a film where he wa- which uh, is starring Maisie Williams uh, and Jason Sudeikis, and in a much smaller part, but more essential part, Catfish. So uh, we talk briefly about that. We talk about the new trailer. It's coming out soon. Go to iTunes and uh, download all the Joffrey of podcasts, please. Thank you so much for letting me pitch it, Matt. Yeah, no problem. I'm looking forward to hearing it. And tell people how uh, they can talk to you about Game of Thrones on the interweb, sir. Yeah, so listen, I talk Game of Thrones all the time on Twitter, but I see our chat room superstar, Iron Trone, has more followers than us. Podcast Winterfall has more followers than me. I need Twitter followers. Go make your mom's cat uh, (laughs) follow me on Twitter. You can follow me at Fit and Trim, F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks uh, again, Bubba, and we'll hopefully get to talk to you sometime in the course of the season. Uh, Mike, you also are featured in uh, a number of podcasts, either working it on one side of the board or the other. Uh, Why don't you tell us about that and how people can talk to you about Game of Thrones? Uh, And Now you've read all of the books. You don't have to worry about people spoiling you on anything. Well, maybe Winds of Winter chapters, right? I haven't read the Winds of Winter yet, but I am done with Dance of Dragons. So whatever you want to talk about, it's all speculation now, baby. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Fifth Column Film, F-I-F-T-H-C-O-L-U-M-N-F-I-L-M. And uh, this week will be the brand new Captain Punishment Adventure Hour. Uh, it comes out on Tuesday. So we'll have a brand new Captain Punishment Adventure Hour that is actually a little shout-out to Podcast Winterfell. Our co-stars on the new series, the new story arc, there'll be four episodes, are everybody's favorite podcast Winterfell host, Matt and Bubba. Uh, they play basically themselves in the Captain Punishment Adventure Hour. Uh, I'll give a brief setup, which is that Captain Punishment uh, had got into some trouble with the baby panda at the San Diego Zoo, and so there's been a lot of bad publicity on Captain Punishment in the school. 
So uh, his right-hand man, Larry Lardman, decides to go out and hire the host of his favorite podcast, Podcast Blizzardfall, about the uh, the uh, George, basically our fake George Martin and our fake Song of Ice and Fire. They hire uh, Bubba and Matt to come and basically do podcast Winterfell-style commentary on Captain Punishment. So uh, it turned out really great. You know, we had a nice recording session with the guys. Lots of good jokes, lots of good ad libs, and uh, definitely some some good Game of Thrones spoof going on in this one. So we've got a king, he's got a wife who's a little too fond of her brother. They've got a son that nobody's sure who he is, but he's kind of causing trouble. There's lots of good uh, good podcast Winterfell spoofs going on in the new Captain Punishment Adventure Hour. So check it out, everybody. It's got your favorite podcasters in it. CaptainPunishment.com. Right on, CaptainPunishment.com. And I, I just want to say, folks, um, you know, I'm, I pretty much get to play my same bumbling self, so you can expect that. Uh, and Bubba really brought the funny, so uh, please check it out. And the, the entire script, I, I got, we, we got a chance to read the entire script, and it's really great. So I'm looking forward to the release of those. Thank you very much, Mike, for having us on to do that. It was great fun. And also, Susan. We can't forget you. You've, you've been in the Game of Thrones world and the Song of Ice and Fire world with the rest of us for a while. How can people talk to you about all of that on Twitter? Uh, yes, I don't have any uh, additional podcasts or special projects, but uh, I am on Twitter at Black Eyed Lily, and I try and get on there a, a few times a week, especially when there are things going on that are a Song of Ice and Fire or Game of Thrones related. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, that's it for you, NBRs. We're going to be leaving you now. Uh, we will be back in two weeks. I actually get to take a week off. Imagine how that could ever happen on Podcast Winterfell. So there will be no new episodes until the week of April 6th. But on April 6th, I want everybody to call in, BRs, NBRs, whoever you are, call me with your predictions or expectations for Season 5 of Game of Thrones. Once again, 724-444-7444 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday, April 6th, to be a part of it. You'll be asked for a call ID, dial 118884, and then the pound sign. And then if you're a TalkSheet member, you'll be added on automatically. If you're not, it's no worries. Just dial 1 and the pound sign, and you'll be added on as a guest. I can't wait to hear from you, and you can always... Uh, give me your predictions or any expectations that you have via other methods or answer Bubba's questions via other methods. Axel Foley is going to tell you exactly how to do that right now. Dun, dun, dun. Um, <clears throat> okay. So, UNBRs hopefully left after the music was over, I hope. There's no more NBRs with us here. Are there? Are there? Heath? Heath, have you gone to sleep yet? Oh, you haven't? Well, just be warned that everything here from here on out is TV spoilerific. So you have been warned. First item of news that I want to talk about, guys, is uh, it looks like, according to the IMD page, that IMDb page, that we have seven episode titles uh, put up there now. We did have the first four. Uh, a few weeks back, but now three more have been added, and that's typically the way they go. They add four up front, and then they add three, and then they add three more or two more, and then sometimes they don't even do the last one until several weeks into the season. Um, has everybody seen the episode titles? Let me just ask, and is it okay if we talk about that? Yeah, let's do it. 
Any objections? Fun. No objections, Mike? No. All right. So we had the first four episode titles for episode 41, The Wars to Come, uh, then The House of Black and White, then The High Sparrow, and then The Sons of the Harpy. Uh, the three new episodes, which I'm sure for all of us who have now finished these books, uh, will, will definitely come to mind. Uh, we have Kill the Boy for episode 45, uh, Unbowed, Unbent, Unbroken for episode 46, and The Gift for episode 47. Um, do any of these new titles jump out at you? Uh, to me, uh, Susan, I'll just go straight to you. The whole Kill the Boy thing is is something that John is reminding himself actually at the, at the pretty much uh, at the beginning of A Dance with Dragons it, it, from his kind of point of view uh, when he's sending Sam away. Um, to me, though, it almost feels like that – I don't know if we're going to get that in the TV show or not, but I do feel like that it's about him taking charge uh, of, the, of the Night's Watch and, and possibly having something to do with sending people to hard home or, or, or getting getting things kind of squared away in the Night's Watch. Do you get that impression as well? Definitely, yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Uh, anybody else have any thoughts about that title? Well, I saw someone online tweet this out. I wish I could remember and give them credit. But they, you know, this line about kill the boy and let the, you know, become the man or whatever it was, uh, was by Maester Eamon. And is that a sign that that episode will be the last time we see our favorite old crusty Targaryen? Oh, oh, so sad. So sad. It may very well be. You never know. You never know. That's an interesting point of view on that. Uh, Mike, any thought about that? Bring it on. Bring it on. He's just ready to bring it on. Uh, well, let me go to you, Mike. Our unbowed, unbent, unbroken. It's obviously going to be uh, something uh, Martell-oriented, right? Um, it'll be interesting to see because we know that there, there's some going to be some converging of storylines between characters that you wouldn't normally uh, wouldn't have seen here from the book. So, uh, any speculation about? I mean, obviously, other than it being uh, related to Dorne, um, anything else you might think of there? Uh, I mean, hopefully, this uh, this we're gonna. I, I'm hoping to get to the replacement for Oberyn on the small council. Uh, I'm hoping that's one thing that pops up in this season that hasn't actually happened in the book. So that's what I'm leaning toward. Ooh, interesting. Very interesting. Uh, That would be very interesting. Could it mean the death of Bronn, Susan? Possibility. Definitely possibility. That's a a one really bad thing that keeps coming to mind when I when I keep thinking about this but, but you never know uh, maybe Braun survives maybe he survives we'll have to see um, Bubba any final thought about that particular episode title well it's a question certainly to a book reader of when uh, Dorn will appear there's you would think it would appear sooner than that but who knows maybe we don't get to, we don't get down south until that time in the season. It's tough. I mean, right now it's all guesses, but very uh, interesting guesses. Yeah, and I'm going to leave you, Bubba, with the most interesting gift, or guest. Uh, yeah, give guest. me that gift. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the gift, uh, because we know that the gift is that area between the the wildling, you know, or between more or less the north, and it was, it was a, an area maintained by the Night's Watch to kind of sustain them for stuff. 
Um, but it could mean a lot of different things, of course, in the context of this show. And I do know that they, the showrunners like to sometimes title an episode and, and make it kind of stream across several different storylines going on. Do you have any speculation about what this one might mean? Well, certainly all our BRs have heard Arya ask in some of these chapters, well, why didn't you give the gift to the uh, Masters of Valeria and stuff, meaning the gift of death when she's there in the House of Black and White? Mm. So uh, that's certainly one thing people would say. There, are, We uh, can suspect, and uh, hopefully this isn't spoiling too many people, but we uh, we suspect there are going to be some upcoming weddings in the upcoming edit- uh, uh, season, and so what do you always bring to a wedding? Well, if you're a good guest, a gift. So uh, I think there are a lot of possibilities. Am I missing any? No, I think that that covers it. But let's uh, ask you, Susan, any possibility, other possibilities that that title brings to mind for you? I think Bubba touched on most of the thoughts that I've had about it, but I think it will be a lot of fun. Uh Mike, any final thoughts on the episode titles? I can't add anything that Bubba doesn't bring to the table, man. Yeah, Bubba brings it all to the table. He certainly does. Uh, speaking of the table, let's talk about that round table at the Oxford Union that was posted. Um, it was filmed, I guess, late last year with Benioff Weiss, Kit Harrington, and John Bradley. Um, it's 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 pretty lengthy and a pretty interesting interview, but uh, it's over an hour long. You can find it on YouTube uh, without any problem. Uh, here's the quote uh, when Benioff and, and Weiss uh, kind of touched on the necessity of, of changing things from the books and the idea about the show eventually spoiling the books. And I have to say that I was really happy about this because this is what I've been saying is going to happen, um, well, since last summer uh, when people started talking about the show spoiling the books. And basically, here, here's what uh, Dave and Dan said. Luckily, we've been talking about this with George for a long time, ever since we saw the, the possibility of us catching up to the, to the books. And we know where things are heading. So we'll eventually basically meet up at pretty much the same place where George is going. There might be a few deviations along the route, but we're heading towards the same destination. I kind of wish there were some things we didn't have to spoil, but we're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. The show must go on, and that's what we're going to do. I think the thing that's kind of fun for George is the idea that he can still have surprises for people even once they've watched the show, Uh, through to the conclusion. There are certain things that are going to happen in the books that are different in the show, and I think that people who love the show and want more, want to know more about the characters, want to know more about the different characters who might have not made the cut for the show, will be able to turn to the books. So that's encouraging to me, you know, that they understand the responsibility of this, but they also um, understand that, that book readers shouldn't feel... Uh, shorted. And and we've talked about this many times about, you know, whether, you know, you're going to be mad about whether the the show spoils the books or anything. But does this make you feel any better? Uh, Bubba, you you were one who were concerned. Does this make you feel any better about what's going to happen? No. And by that, I mean the big strokes are going to be spoiled. I'm praying that George gets this sixth book out before the sixth season. But this, no way, the seventh book is coming out before the seventh season, and so a lot of deaths, a lot of answers to some of our questions, it's all going to be out. And so I just have to grin and bear it. I'm obviously going to still read the seventh book when it comes out, uh, and I'm a senior citizen, but, uh, <laughs> you know, 
I'll know most of the big points, even though as they are correct, it's going to be a different, different. So many of the details, you know, the destination is going to be the same. It's just the journey is going to be different. It's just I wish I didn't know what the destination was before I started reading the seventh book. But you know, I'm going to grin and bear it, and certainly enjoy these show, these uh, television seasons. Oh, I was hoping that you might have just warmed your heart a little bit towards the whole prospect, but I guess I was wrong. Mike, uh, any concerns there, or, or, or do you feel better now, or how do you feel? Well, you know, the reaction that I didn't expect when I was watching it was when they asked uh, Harrington if who he thinks Jon Snow's mother is, and he says, oh, I have no idea. I have no theories. I have no idea. And I'm sitting there like, you're so full of shit. Like, you keep me that in no way that you're this deep into this universe and you don't have any idea. I believe when you say that, when he said he hasn't asked them, you know, I would never ask them, you know. I believe him when he says that. But the idea that he has no notion is nonsense to me. And I feel well, like... Well, hold on, hold on. He does know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I was just going to say that, you know, he's just about as good a liar as I am when we were doing the NBR podcast last year. <laughs> That's probably what it is. Um, but, uh, you know, he's just not a very good liar. That's all. But I'm feeling I'm, feeling, I'm having that reaction, and I'm really feeling like, especially, you know, if the sixth book is out, not even necessarily before the sixth season, but as long as Winds of Winter is out before the show is over, I have a feeling there's not going to be a whole lot of speculation left to have on the big points. So the more, you know, this is something that I hadn't really thought about until I was watching that thing today and listening to Dan and Dave talk and, and listening to Harrington talk about, you know, predictions and lack thereof and so on and so forth. And I really just got the sense that I feel like we're all already going to pretty much know what those big points are going to be even before season seven starts. And the speculation is going to be on the details. And so I'm feeling less and less bothered by it. I'm feeling more and more like we're already going to have a sense of what goes down. And then when the book comes out, you know, it won't be so much of a disappointing thing because we're going to have already theorized all that stuff between season six and season seven or between the winds of winter and season seven, hopefully. Excellent points. Excellent points. And Susan, you get the final word on this. Well, I thought it was interesting that Dan said that, uh, I think I've got Dan and David correct in which one's which, but that he said uh, that Jon Snow's parents is a big spoiler because I thought, well, at least we know that this is going to play into the uh, big a big part of what the reveals are going to be. And, and I agree that Kit Harrington has to, to have a pretty good idea. Uh, uh, you know, he fairly intelligent person, so I, I didn't believe that either. <laughs> yeah, he's a bad liar. He's a really bad liar. If he if he's read all the books, then he knows what we all know. And everybody say it all together. Who is Jon Snow's mother? The question that uh, George asked Dave and Dan in order to be able to green light the series. Who is he? Uh, one, two, three. Fishmonger's daughter. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> So there you go. Here's your answer. The fishmonger's daughter, Leanna. Uh, exactly. Yes, exactly. Uh, but we have to, you know, I give it out to Dave and Dan. They're trying to wrap up something uh, that uh, they're going without uh, any kind of 
real steering ship other than what George has whispered to them, as they said in the red carpet thing tonight, you know, they, they were brought into the inner sanctum and George whispered in their ear and they're sworn to secrecy. Uh, so I, I don't think, uh, you know, I think it's going to be fun for me uh, as a book reader to, to be in the same boat with all of you, TV, uh, all of the TV people who are not listening now, right? TV people, you're not listening now. But as they wrap up uh, their notions on, on how to plan, because they do talk a lot about, you know, mapping out towards the very end already. So we're going to map out our end of A Dance with Dragons, which concludes our Feast Dance Tandem Read right now with these five chapters. The Dragon Tamer, John 13, The Queen's Hand, Daenerys 10, and an epilogue. We didn't get an epilogue in Feast for Crows, but we get one in A Dance with Dragons. And I'll go to you first, Susan. Um, when you read this for the first time uh, and you walked away and you closed this book, uh, were you satisfied? And anything about these chapters stand out to you? Oh, gosh. There's a lot of things about these chapters that stand out to me. Um, satisfied in terms of where I that this completed a like an arc or something like that. I, I can't say I was, but I think because I I know that, you know, there were two more books and so the story was still going to go on that I wasn't disappointed by it. I was, uh, you know, anticipating and I know that there are things that people felt, you know, should have been in there, shouldn't have been in there. It seems like we're building up to these great big battles both in Marine and up with uh, King Stannis in Winterfell. Um, and I think George initially was going to put him in the book, and then they ended up being pushed forward, and that seems kind of strange. But uh, I, I think no matter where he had ended it, knowing that we still have two more books, there was still going to be an awful lot that needed to, that needed to be told. So I'm, I'm fine with it, and, and I do like these books for what they are as, as standalones as well. Excellent. All right. Well, Mike, I mean, you're the guy who's like been tearing through these books. You would have been done with this book a long time ago if you hadn't been holding yourself out for this read to give us first uh, hand impressions. And I really thank you for that. But now Luke's got his arm around Leah. They're staring out of the nebula as the millennium Falcons kind of sails off. How, how do you feel about the conclusion of this series so far? Oh man, uh, I feel. I mean, I feel. Uh, I feel heavy. I feel. Uh, I feel like I've got a lot in my backpack to carry around. You know, uh, I. I you know, I'm really. I'm really thrilled with the way they ended. But I think what was really interesting to me. I think what I liked even more than actually the story of these last five chapters. I think what I enjoyed was the style and really I felt like I got, like I have more kind of clues into uh, Martin's storytelling style and also more clues into how the, the book series has been adapted to the television show now than I ever have before. Uh, you know, so I really, I felt like I learned more about the overall uh, art and feeling of them than I did from the actual story from these last five chapters, and I actually really enjoyed that. Excellent. 
Excellent. And uh, Bubba, you've been here before. Um, you've thrown this book across the room many times. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, how, how did you feel? At the, well, first, I guess give us an impression the first time you read it and maybe compare it to an impression of reading it now and, and in hopes for Winds of Winter to get here. Uh, in both cases, obviously, I love these worlds, but I, I would do say the opposite of Susan was my reaction. These aren't standalone books. Forget that you have to kind of read the three previous ones. They don't have an ending, so many of these stories. I just want to go through it again. Stannis is three days ride from Winterfell. Uh, Victorian was two days away from uh, Marine in Slaver's Bay. We find out that Cersei's trial is five days hence. So we're building up to a, a cliffhanger, but... These weren't really written, as Susan said. I think some of those events were supposed to happen in this book, so they weren't even written as real cliffhangers so much as just the story stops, and you're like, oh, we're stopping here? There's only one chapter that really feels like, a, okay, this is the whole book has definitely been building to this point, and so it is kind of an arc, and it makes sense, and that is uh, what happens to the new Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. But even in that instance, if you go back to the first book, which I am obviously such a huge super fan of, Ned doesn't die in, like, the last chapter or, you know, even the fourth to last chapter. Ned dies actually kind of – there are at least 100 pages left, it feels like, because the denouement, the, you know, the descending action, what that means kind of has to be set up, where here uh, it is just kind of a daggers in the dark, and that's it. So uh, I enjoy a lot of these chapters, but uh, to me they feel like, you know – Martin decided not to do the time jump, so you can't, you know, excuse, well, he was going to do a time jump, and he didn't. But that was the point. He didn't. So we have to judge him on how these came out. So uh, I'll judge tough as we go along. <laughs> All right. Sounds fair enough. And we'll move on to the Dragon Tamer. Quentin Martell prepares, prepares to take his dragons full of regrets and wishes, using disguises as brazen beasts that come with from the Tattered Prince, Martell, Drinkwater, and Archibald infiltrate the pyramid, meet up with Pretty Maris and her crew, and make their way to the dragons. At the dragon pit door, they meet Resistance and defeat it. Entering the pit, they calm Rhaegal down, but cannot calm Viserion down. Quentin does his best to try and tame Viserion, but then, of course, Rhaegal is not tamed at all, and he comes up from behind Quentin and unleashes fire upon the Dornishman. Okay. Uh, where do we start? I, I guess the best thing to do is just start with you, Mike, because you called it from a while back that Quentin was going to be uh, dragon fodder. Um, so this was no surprise to you at all, I suppose, right? No. And well earned. Well earned. So, so looking at Quentin, uh, and of course, uh, he does linger. We'll just go ahead and say, since we're doing all of these chapters, he does linger for a few days um, after this happens. Um, but oh, would your final word or your final thought have been, oh? <laughs> you know, that was a really interesting thing that was that happened in this chapter, and also actually happened in the Daenerys chapter when her and Drogon are going after the horse. Uh, and I don't want to skip ahead, but, you know, they they both kind of have this moment where they are completely in, engulfed in flame, but don't realize it. You know, the horse is described as continuing to run, 
and you have this moment with Quentin where he, you know, where he puts his arm up to block himself from the fire before he realizes that he is actually a flame. And I thought that was a really interesting. There has there's there's a reason behind that. That's not accidental. Uh, that they both find themselves on fire before they're really even conscious of it. I thought that was actually really powerful um, and a really kind of a striking way to end it. That's interesting. Very interesting point to bring up. Um, Susan, any thought on that, or what's the first thing you want to bring up? Well, Quentin says in, in this chapter, men die on grand adventures. But he had thought the hero wouldn't die, so he needed to make himself. He needed to be the hero in this story. Well, I don't think he was. Well, the interesting thing, and what I love the, is the comparison is, uh, we all think of Ned Stark as a hero, right? And and he goes the way of the go, uh, you know. So in a way, uh, George is being uh, faithful to his axiom. Except I don't really think of Quentin. As a hero, I in my after my first read of this, I was just kind of like, oh, oh, what was the point? And with that, I'll probably go to Bubba because I'm sure he's going to ask the same question. He doesn't technically die in this chapter, so I'm not going to be pouring one out for him right now. But I do have to ask our newbies and uh, anybody maybe in the chat room. In, in addition, is that was this journey worth it? Are you glad that we spent the chapters we spent with Quentin? Are you glad that it came out like this? You know, uh, Quentin is soft. He wants to go home. He wants to live a happy life. I mentioned before, he doesn't think of home as, sun, as Sunspear. He thinks of home where he fostered. He thinks of his mom. He really doesn't even think of his dad, even though kind of the pressure of, oh, I'll go home with my tail between my legs to my dad is kind of his negative thing to him. And so I would say the real, quote-unquote, subtle thing about this chapter is the sun sets in the east. Oh, right. Nice. That's great, man. That's a great find. Uh, any comment on that, guys? Other than nice? I <laughs> I do think that it was worth going through the the Quentin story because I think that this is going to be fodder for Dorn in the future. Uh, it's you know I feel like this story isn't so much about Quentin himself as about uh, motivation for Dorn, and part of that was about you know learning Dorn's motivation uh, a little bit earlier in the story. So you know it's not all a big surprise next season when all of a sudden the Dornish are upset. Uh, but, you know, so I had read it, I mean, not necessarily throughout, but certainly my impression of it when it was finished was that it wasn't about Quentin as much as it was about setting up the Dornish and giving them uh, a motivation to kind of move forward. Not necessarily a, a justifiable motivation in the sense that now they have a real case to go against the Iron Throne, uh, but more kind of in their like personal revenge motivation, kind of the internal world of the Dornish. I think this will be a real, um, you know, fire starter for them, pun intended. Right. Well, since we're all in the same spot here, let's just let's just think about this now. Uh, well, maybe we're not in the exact same spot, but but let's think about this uh, in terms of where that does leave Doran and his plan. Um, Doran, you know. 
was kind of hinging on this uh, alliance a little bit. He, he's been planning for it. That's why he sent Quentin here. Um, what are Doran's act? Uh, what are his his options in terms of you know what is where does he turn next? Because you know he doesn't have anybody he can ally himself with the Targaryen, or does he? Well, he's he's sending. Ariane, if we remember his last chapter, he's sending her to find out the truth about this Aegon, you know, quote unquote, his nephew, if that's true. Uh, and so, and he's sending his uh, his uh, nieces, the Sand Snakes, out on various missions. But yeah, his main one was his son here, Quentin, getting getting the dragons and getting the bride. And how is he going to react when he finds out that his son? Uh, became a bit of barbacoa, you know, we'll see. Yeah. Plus, let's not forget that the key thing here to me, at least in terms of, uh, uh, as far as Marine is concerned, is there are now two dragons free, right? We learned that in the next chapter as well, or we learned that actually in the last chapter, uh, when, in the Kingbreaker, because, uh, evidently this happens kind of at the same time that we have this stuff happening with, with the, of course, with the Barristan Somi. So um, now there's two more dragons laying around out there, uh, just who can eat up anybody that they want. Uh, perhaps the people outside of uh, Marine, or perhaps the people within Marine. So there's a threat to be thinking about for the next book, right? Oh yes, oh yes. Um, you know this is, you know, this thing never gets easier. It never gets better. And this is not going to make these two people. Uh, <laughs> this is not going to make these two people get along any better. Uh, you know, no side can agree with another side. And so, the Martells certainly hate the Lannisters, and you would assume they hate the Baratheons kind of by default as well. And so now, seems like they're going to hate the Targaryens possibly. Mm, possibly. And so. I think the point too about this going on at the same time that the thing with Barristan went on. Well, I think that's of course, one of the, the problems that happened when they approached these brazen beasts that have the locust masks on. Well, we had read about the locust masks being on the, the men that were, uh, you know, meeting with, with Barristan and the shave paint. So very likely those were part of his crew, and that's why they didn't recognize the password of dog because they were part of this one with the password of Brolio. So it's likely that part of the reason, I mean, not that Quentin would have been able to necessarily get the dragons and get out of there anyways, but when things first started going south was when those uh, locust masked uh, brazen beasts did not recognize the password. Right. Yeah. Great, great point. Great point on the parallel there. Did anybody, did anybody, well, I was going to jump in and say, did anybody uh, find it a bit interesting that the dragons never really attacked. You know, the dragons didn't attack Quentin. They didn't attack any of the humans. It wasn't until the infamous crossbow and then Quentin's whip that they turned mm. kind of uh, against the human beings. And so I thought that was uh, very uh, possibly a positive for these hideous beasts. Right. Interesting. Yeah. I wanted to also touch on your point about uh, the sun setting in the east. Now, that is referring way back to uh, Maris, what was her name? The uh, Mary Mazdur. Mary Mazdur, right. And 
what she had said to Danny after, uh, uh, you know, Drogon or Drogo was, uh, you know, after her magic had uh, put him in a comatose state, you know, that uh, so this is not part of um, Daenerys' prophecies, like from the uh, House of the Undying or something that Quaith said to her. And I think what's interesting about that is, does that mean, because Danny has always kind of assumed that to be something that is just not going to come true, but could it be that some of these things that she had said, that Mary's Mestor had said, are transpiring, and then based on that, what does that mean for Daenerys? Well, let's well, read I... the prophecy real quick. The prophecy that Mary Mazdor, you know, Danny's like, when am I going to have kids again? When, when, when will Drogo be with me again? And mm-hmm. She's like, when the sun rises in the west and sets in the east. Now, the Martell sigil is a, a spear piercing a sun, so it's kind of a sun. So the sun rising in the west is that the Martells, uh, you know, rising to fight in Westeros. And sets in the east is this the sun setting, a.k.a. Quentin, whose sigil is a sun, setting in the east, killed the marine. When the seas go dry and mountains blow in the wind like leaves. Well, we saw a mountain blow in the wind. He got pretty much strike, struck down. When the seas go dry, is that when, when our boy, uh, <laughs> when our when the drunk prophet decided to give up alcohol? When your womb quickens again, you will bear a living child, and he will return, and not before. So that's the prophecy. People are wondering: Is it possible that this Quentin is kind of the final nail we need in this? And let's just go ahead and, and think about the Danny chapter. I know we could talk about it in the Danny chapter, but but let's think about what's happening to her. She's she's having this bleeding. She's thinking about her moon blood, um, and she's presented with a uh, she's presented with a calisar in front of her. I mean, there, there's a lot of parallels to be drawn between this chapter and, and the Daenerys chapter, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. And that's another sea. Could be the the uh, Dothraki Sea, which is turning brown. Right. Mm. When the seas yep. go dry, people in the chat room are throwing out other seas going dry. Now, my favorite one is mandatory in the chat room says seas go dry. Well, obviously that's when Theon lost his chunk. Now that is a wait a minute. So. Oh, <laughs> great. What else do we have on this chapter, guys? Great thoughts, all. Uh, I want pretty Maris on my team, even in dragons. <laughs> pretty Maris seems to survive everything, doesn't she? Yeah. I would say that uh, she, we assume that she got out of here. I can't remember if in the next chapter we find out, next Marine chapter we find out or not. But one thing that I thought was that Quentin, like everybody, when, they, when they're doing something they know they shouldn't, he kept rationalizing his actions. Like he thinks to himself... Daenerys wants me to do this. That's why she showed the dragons to me. And it's like, oh, come on, buddy. You are completely an idiot. And so uh, maybe he got what he deserved. Well, and, I, I, and at the same time, he was also doing a lot of, you know, what am I doing here? You know, I, I, I you know, this crazy kind of, he was doing some of that too, which I also think is appropriate for the, for what he was going through. Yeah. Yeah, that was definitely the realistic side of it. Um, but I have to agree with you, uh, Bubba. Quentin just doesn't measure up. Maybe he doesn't measure up quite not as much as Tyrion. Does that make sense? Yeah, amen. 
finally yeah. somebody described them both together, like they should always be referred to together. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, great. What else we got? I'd like to just uh, say that I agree with Mike. I think that this has a lot to do with the Dornish story in the future and the fact that, you know, Daenerys makes it to, to Westeros if there's going to be an alliance with the Martells or not and what they're going to do with Aegon or not and how all that's going to work out. I think that's going to, this is going to play a lot into that. Does any does anybody want to uh, speculate? I guess I should say. Does anybody want to speculate on how this might go down in the show if the show has not in fact cast anyone as Quentin? Are the dragons are the sons of the harpy going to really try to kill the dragons and then release them, or is that not even going to happen this season? I, I I wonder some of that stuff myself, but obviously we would just be completely speculating. Well, here's a complete speculation just based on the trailer, Bubba. You were talking about is Grey Worm hurt when Miss Sande is with him? Looks like oh. she's giving him a little loving. Could it be right. that uh, Grey Worm ends up having to release the dragons for some reason? Right. It burns. It burns. We do seem to see a dragon letting loose some fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely going to be some interesting dragon stuff happen. How it happens, uh, we'll have to see, and we'll have to see if they get out uh, in this coming season or not. Mike, any thought on that? Well, I got a, a slightly larger question about succession here, which is, so Aegon, if he's to be believed, is Rhaegar's son, Right. And Daenerys is Eris's daughter. Right, Rhaegar's younger sister. So technically, according to secession, Aegon as the son of the crown prince would come before uh would come before obviously Daenerys. Because he's the son of the crown prince, not because it's a boy, but because Rhaegar was in was in line before Daenerys and so his offspring would be in line before her as well. So it doesn't seem like if she's going to actually be the one that, because they're trying to, Golden Company is thinking they're going to link up with the Dornish in one way or another. So if that actually happened, then that would be an impediment to Daenerys being at the Iron Throne because Aegon would have prominence. Correct. Well, that's very interesting then. So, uh, does that make you think even more that George couldn't possibly have Aegon be the real Aegon? Oh, I wouldn't say that. I think he could kill him just as easily as he could decide he's not the real Aegon. Okay. That's a good enough point. That's fair. I enjoy that better. Uh, that's fair. That's fair enough. It is George's world, and we all just live in it. So that's true. Or die in it, uh, for the most part. What else we got on this chapter? So I guess then the question would be, if to relate it back to the chapter, if then you know, is is Daenerys going to end up taking the blame for this? As far as you know, from the Dornish perspective, is Daenerys going to take the blame? Is she going to be able to talk her way out of it? Is 
the fact of the strength and power of the dragons enough to make the Dornish forget about Quentin if she doesn't, you know, if, if she does end up getting the blame and kind of doesn't want to apologize, I guess. I don't really know exactly how else to say that. But, you know, Jairus Drinkwater is upset and basically blaming her. I guess that's the next chapter, isn't it? But so then, you know, where does that leave the Dornish then without Quentin in regards to Daenerys? I love being able to ask questions that I know nobody really knows the answer to. This right, you just time. want us to speculate. That's fine, okay. Bubba, do you have a speculation? Sadly, no. <laughs> Sadly, I don't. Yeah. yeah I think it's, it's, it's a great question, and I think that, you know, part of it's going to depend on, uh, you know, how the news gets back to Dorne. Uh, like you said, this uh, Gareth Drinkwater and uh, the the is it the big man uh, from the Ironwoods? Uh, you know they have both have different viewpoints on it. They were there with Clinton, but are they going to? Are either of them going to actually be back in Dorne to present this in news and to tell about what happened or not? So you know, the, I think those are all things that are going to play a role in in how it comes across. Is anybody in Dorne going to be alive by the time these two get back? I mean, it's going <laughs> to take them another whole book to get back. Very interesting. I don't know, guys. I I don't know. I don't know. Well, last call for this chapter, guys. Anything else? Good. Everybody said it's something at once. Uh, Bubba, what were you saying? Good riddance, Quentin. We need these books to get shorter. <laughs> and Mikey said, "Just you know, don't mess with the dragon scene. Don't mess with the dragons." Yeah, right on. All right. Well, um, evidently, don't mess with the Night's Watch either. John thirteen. A meeting with Queen Celeste produces no help for a mission to Hardhome, and John announces that he will lead the mission himself. It also produces a series of marriages between prominent wildling daughters and some of Solis's lords. Leaving, John receives another warning from Melisandre. He then meets with Leathers, continuing to, meet, to plan a rescue mission at Hardhome. Back at his quarters, he finds his animal companions disturbed, and later, a meeting with Marsh and Yarwick finds them disturbed as well. With the, letter, with the weather, John moves to the ice cell... Oh, with the weather, John moves the ice cell prisoners to a different location but not the dead ones. Tormund arrives for some conversation before John receives a disturbing letter from Winterfell and shares its contents with the wildling, and then they make a plan. They go to a large meeting and he has called they go to a large meeting he has called to discuss Hardhome and the letter, and John asks for help from the wildlings to go to Winterfell. Then one one has killed uh, poor George's NFL Cowboys knight, Sir Patrick, and has several and has been wounded himself. As John tries to get order of the situation, he is attacked by his own men. As John desperately thinks of ghosts, four blades seemingly seal his fate. 
Well, if ever there was a place for a dun-dun-dun, I suppose this would be it. But I just don't have the energy in me tonight, guys. Um, Got to go to you, Mike, first. When you read this, did you see it coming? When? What are you thinking? What's going on with John? Is he dead? Is he just dying? What's going on? Dude, if you don't have the energy, I will do it for you. Dun-dun-dun! Whoa! Wow! Uh, no, I don't think he's dead. Uh, I think uh, I think Longclaw is going to get some work once he comes out of the uh, out of the uh, recovery room. I, I mean, this was you know one thing that I really enjoyed about these these final chapters, and this one was uh, this one was a, an excellent example, is how kind of wrapped up in our own minute-to-minute lives we are, you know. Um, I mean, this this chapter, there's a lot of interesting things that are happening, but we're very much inside John's head while he's kind of, of you know, uh, writing and rewriting his grocery list, you know, and, and kind of rethinking about what he needs to do, and there's all these different things going on, and he's just kind of all wrapped up in his own existence. And I'm reading it like, this seems like a weird finish to John's part of this book, you know, to be kind of wrapped up in the the minute-to-minute details. And, you know, there's this thing happening. He's got to split up the group. He's going to go south. Some other people can go north. But he's still kind of basically wrapped up in the the minute-to-minute details of his life, you know. And it just seemed to me like a little bit of a workaday way to finish his version of this book, you know, his part of this book. So, I was really surprised. I totally did not see it coming. Uh, it was very exciting. It was very thrilling. Um, I was, you know, it's weird to say I was happy about it because not exactly happy about him getting stabbed, but definitely happy that the chapter ended up on such a strong, surprising note. And uh, I don't think it's going to turn out well for these guys that stuck him. And I say that based on when John says, you know, I will not make any man break his vows, but I am going to ask how many of you are coming with me. And the response shakes the shields off the walls in, in shield halls. So despite the fact that, you know, Yarwick and Marsh and a couple of these guys aren't really on his side, it seems like most of the, the Night's Watch are, and obviously most of the Wildlings have, have signed up for his team. And, you know, so I felt like things were actually going really well for him. So... It was a powerful and strong finish to his part of this book, but I don't think that's the end of John, that's for sure. Okay, fair enough. Susan, have we had too many fake-out deaths throughout the course of these two books uh, for us to take what has happened to John here seriously? (laughs) Well, I think this is a pivotal, extremely pivotal in John's arc, I think this is basically going to be the beginning of him turning into Zora as Hawk. Because, uh, you know, the the whole uh, transformation uh, that he's going to go through here, that, uh, you know, we, we pretty much, after reading this chapter, then you have some real rationale for the prologue to A Dance with Dragons, that whole chapter uh, for Veramir Sixkins where he goes into the information about second life and what that uh, means and um, with John he is most likely I mean the very last thing that he says is ghost 
And yeah. if you go back to that prologue, one of the things that Vermeer says when he's reminiscing and he's thinking back uh, through his life, and um, he thinks about the fact that he apparently had approached Mance about he had wanted to try and take a ghost away from John. And he says, uh, yeah, a dire a dire wolf, now that would be a second life fit for a king. Mm, very interesting. Plus, do you compare this with the precedence of, of Rob at the Red Wedding uh, and some of the conversations about, you know, how they had to... Uh, that we've heard, uh, I guess, post the Red Wedding about how uh, Grey Wind had to be put down quite uh, hard because of the, of his massive fighting, and it, there's been illusions that maybe Rob was trying to warg into Grey Wind before Grey Wind was killed. Yes, I definitely. I think Rob was trying to do that, but I think in that instance that Grey Wind was killed, so there wasn't you know that that uh, chance for that to fully occur. But yeah. Right. Okay, excellent. All right. Bubba, uh, surely you're going to side with me and just say, well, John's just gone, right? He's yeah, just gone. Yeah, good riddance. Listen, we got to thin these books out. How many chapters do you have in these books? Fifteen? I mean, dear Lord, let's go. <laughs> and what kind of a point do you have, sir? Okay, well, i got a couple, and sorry, forgive me, everybody, for reading. The first one I want to do is uh, when you read this nice Night's Watch Oath, it really comes back to kind of, Martin wrote the oath and then decided to see if he could try to, what he could do with it. So, night gathers and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. Well, John, you're dead. I shall take no wife. No, but you got busy in a sex cave with a gret. Hold no lands. Father, no children. Well, hopefully he didn't get busy with, uh, you know, if gret had kids, not so much. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. He did do that. I am the sword in the darkness, the watcher on the walls. The shield that guards the walls of men, I pledge my life and honor for this night and all nights to come. Well, you know, that's one way to get out of your oath, is just eat a lot of daggers. (laughs) Right, and then I would say that, is John Azor a high? Well, let's read it. There will come a day after a long summer. Well, summer's over. The white raven has been sent. It's officially winter at the end of this book. When the stars bleed. Now, this is a bit of a tricky one. Did the stars bleed when John got killed? Well, what do we all know? We all know that what's the sigil of Sir Patrick? Sure enough, it's a star, and it was red bleeding as Sir Patrick was bleeding. To go back to your point, Matt, yes, Martin did have the giant's Kill the Cowboys. Good work, NFL fan. Then he <laughs> says, okay, and the cold breath of darkness will fall heavy on the world. And this dreadest hour of warrior. So, in other words, the red, the star bleeds. Well, the star sigil did bleed. Uh, Melisandre had a, in her chapter, she talked about seeing John as a man, then a wolf, then a man. And so we shall have to see how it goes. Um you know, it does, once again, it doesn't say red star. It says the star bleeds. So is John Azor high? Well, he's going to have to come back, and he's going to need Lightbringer with him. But, you know, let him die. You know, you know, let him stay dead. That's what I say. Oh, you're so cruel, man. You're so cruel. I know. We need George to be able to write these books faster, and not having 13 John chapters would uh, probably speed up the process just a little bit. But, man, you know, that's just... Me. Now on the salt and the salt and smoke part of it, what do we know about you know 
touched in touch with his feelings, Bowen Marsh. He was tears were streaming down his face as he killed old Johnny, and so was there salt in his tears. Boy, there's little something everywhere. And it didn't say his blood was smoking. Yeah, you know, because it's 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 uh, colder outside than his blood, which should be warmer. So it would have uh, I don't know if that's technically smoke, but yeah, his blood should be. There was smoke there. Way to you know, way to fulfill prophecy mm-hmm. as you die. Good work, Mister Snow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Mikey, buying in? Uh, it's pretty hard not to listen to y'all talk about it that way. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of things that could be interpreted. But, you know, uh, you can interpret three million different meanings of something from a line from the Bible, too. So uh, just just saying. Uh, but, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I've am I'm bought in, Bubba. But what does it mean? What, what, what happens here from now on? Well, maybe they're going to throw John's body in the cell with the other uh, dead people, and we'll see if, uh, you know, he encourages these dead people to, Wake from the grave as whites. Mm. Mm. But he's going to be in ghost, right? Because he's a wolf and then a man, yeah. a man and a wolf. Probably, probably he will be in ghost. We would assume, like his consciousness would warg into ghost, and then Melisandre. Melisandre on the show, remember, has seen uh, Sir Beric come back from the dead with the kiss of life. So how in the world would John's body come back? Or is just for the rest of the time, if we have any more John chapters, they're like, mm, I need to find a tree to relieve myself on. Or <laughs> a hungry wolf. Well, I know we're going to want to talk about the pink letter, but before we do, uh, let's uh, let you get a point in, Susan. Well, uh, talking about John being thrown in the ice cells. If you go back to that chapter in Game of Thrones where Bran is having his first vision and at the time um, you wouldn't really make this connection but if you look back at that now uh, and the reference about John in that in that um, chapter uh, when, he, when he looks north, first he sees the wall um, as um, blue ice. Um, I'm trying to find exactly where this uh, where this quote is right now, but um, uh, yeah, the wall was shining like blue crystal, and his bastard brother John sleeping alone in a cold bed, his skin growing pale and hard as the memory of all warmth fled from him. And when you first heard it back in Game of Thrones, it just sounded like, you know, John getting used to being up at the wall. But now when you look back at it from this perspective, it sounds like at the time that that John that Bran was having the vision that it was actually a day it was probably a daytime vision of the wall if it's shining like blue crystal and that wouldn't typically be a time that John would be, you know, sleeping and but this description of him uh, with his skin growing pale and hard as the memory of all warmth fled from him, again, may refer to kind of what's going on with him now. And then the vision that Daenerys has in the House of the Undying where she sees the chink where the blue flower is growing out of the ice, you know, both of those are also, you know, different prophecies or visions 
from much earlier in the series that could refer to some of what's going on here. Any comments? Bran's visions back in that first book should have come with spoiler alert tags. Way to go, Bran. <laughs> Ruin it for everybody. <laughs> but he's, so that's, that's back when he saw the the uh, the mountain with the, or, you know, what we think might be the mountain with the uh, headless, putting the bloody black blood under the uh, helm. Yep, yep, yep. Well, Bran's everywhere. Well, like Bubba said, he's just going to rewrite the whole series. Um, so that's, that's the way that goes. Any other comments on, on Susan's stuff? Great stuff, Susan. And even within this chapter itself, when John goes, or actually, no, it wasn't this chapter. It was a couple chapters before. John went to visit Karstark in the ice cells, and it said that he saw his own reflection inside of those icy walls and that the rusted hinges screamed like damned souls which kind of just boding, you know, premonition there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do we want to talk about the pink letter now? Let's do it. Do you want me to read it? Sure, please do. All right, let me burn through this real quick. The letter states, Your false king is dead, bastard. He and his hosts were smashed in seven days of battle. I have his magic sword. Tell his red whore. Your false king's friends are dead. Their heads are upon the walls of Winterfell. Come see them, bastard. Your false king lied, and so did you. You told the world you burned the king beyond the wall. Instead, you sent him to Winterfell to steal my bride from me. I will have my bride back. If you want Mance Raider back, come and get him. I have him in a cage for all the North to see. Proof of your lies. The cage is cold, but I have also made him a warm cloak from the skins of the six whores who came with him to Winterfell. I want my bride back. I want the false king's queen. I want his daughter and his red witch. I want this wildling princess. I want his little prince, the wildling babe. And I want my reek. Send him to me, bastard, and I will not trouble you or your black crows. Keep them from me, and I will cut out your bastard's heart and eat it. Ramsay Bolton, true-born lord of Winterfell. <laughs> That's the best reading of that. Or, you know, Roy should have come to you for for uh, cues on how to read that letter. That was perfect, by the way. Now, now. What, is, what does it mean? How much of it, Mike, let's go to you first. How much of it, Mike, do we believe? Well, my first question is, where the hell is Ruth? Why are we getting this letter from Ramsey? Is my first question. Uh, I don't. I mean, how much of it do we believe? He doesn't actually say that Stannis is dead, right? Just that he's been defeated. No, it starts with your false king is dead, bastard. So you would assume does, that's implying about Stannis. He does say he's dead. All right. Well, I don't. I mean, uh, I don't know. First things first. I don't believe anything Ramsey has to say, but that's an awful big lie to tell. Uh, about the only thing that I believe in it personally is that he wants his reek back. Yeah, I believe that. But uh, but I mean, what would he have to gain from saying Stannis is dead if he isn't actually? Because I've been saying Stannis is going to die. And so I want to believe that 
he's telling the truth about that. But what would what would he have to gain from lying about that? Does he think that that I don't know. I guess the the Night's Watch is going to come and he's going to kill all of them too, or I don't really know what he would get out of lying about that in particular. Well, if he defeated Stannis, how does he not have Reek and his bride back? That's that's one question I have. Right, because the last time that we saw them, they had just turned up at Camp Stannis. But they were with, I mean, they presumably left with uh, the Bravosi, or they at least could have left with the Bravosi, right? They could have, that's true. We didn't see them. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Well, Bubba, I'm sure you've got some questions you want to ask about this. Well, I do, I, and I have to say this is one thing people love debating. This is why we want that sixth book. We want to understand what in the world is going on. I just asked a great question about how, why does he keep saying, I want my bride back and I want my reek back, if if he won the battle, shouldn't he have them? Unless, like Mike is uh providing an option. Maybe they left with the Bravosi, even though that seems a bit odd that, uh, you know, Stannis would keep uh, Asha Greyjoy, but make her brother go back to the wall. That doesn't seem to make much sense. Actually, last we heard, he was going to kill Reek. So, you know, there's a lot of craziness in this. But then also, if Ramsey wrote the letter, which is something we even, not sure if we can even, if this is a false narrator in every sense of the word, it's we know that he must have caught Mance Raider, well, and and killed them. But then, you know, it's just so bizarre because he knows so much. He knows so much about what's going on with Stannis. He knows about, uh, you know, he wants. He knows that Selyse is there at the wall. He knows that Stannis's daughter is at the wall. He knows this Red Witch is there. He knows about the Wildling Princess at the wall. Did Mance Raider spill all the beans about this? I mean, it's how does he have such great intel? I wonder. If once again Ramsey wrote it, and and I think Mike's question was good. Wouldn't it Bruce be the one really doing correspondence, not Ramsey? What's going on with this thing? It's it's one of the reasons why people begin to wonder if Ramsey wrote it. It did come with pink wax, and pink is one of the colors on the sigil of the flayed man of House Bolton. But um, you know, it, it, it just all it does is lead to more questions. And there's, also, there are some. Okay. It says a, a smear of hard pink wax, where usually you'd have a little bit more than that. And, and I think there there was a previous letter from uh, Ramsey about when he he was going to marry uh, Arya, and people look back at that, and you know it, it describes you know like it was a proper seal. This isn't even like a seal, like they would have the you know stamp of the uh, person's um, you know sigil in it. This is right. just a smear. Yeah, the letter to Deepwood Mott actually had the seal too. So, right, there was a letter from yes. Bolton. Right, right. Well, if Ramsey didn't write it, does anybody want to speculate who could have written it? Some people think Stannis wrote it, and so the thought process will be: what? Why? How would Stannis know about Mance Raider and all this stuff unless Melisandre told him somehow that she was going to send? Mance Raider to Winterfell, which I think was a thing that happened after he had already left. Uh, you wonder uh, why would Stannis write it? Well, maybe it's one way to get you know more troops 
down because his troops are all dying and eating horses, and you know some of them, quote unquote, might be eating things worse than horses. So uh, you know, if he didn't write it, who who did write this? It's it's very confusing, but you can see it really does hit a lot of points that would drive Jon Snow absolutely crazy. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah. Susan, do you have a guess? Did Ramsay write it or did he not? I don't think he did. Um, and um, I think Stannis could be an option for that, but I don't want to get too much further into that because I am a little blurred on some things that I've read ahead and I don't want to necessarily spoil anything uh, that might come from a further chapter. So um, there's the possibility of it being uh, Mass Raider because uh, he has kind of talked about, you know, having a ploy that he wanted to, to play. And and we never really knew exactly what that was all about. Was that just something that he thought was going to make it easier for him to try and, and uh, get Arya out of uh, the Bolton's hands? Or was there something more that he was trying to, to pull um, that had more to do with just the the wildings and the whole situation. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Mike, do you have a guess or a thought about Susan's suggestions? Well, my first thought is that Susan's like having an older sibling who's always read a book and listened to a record you never have. Someday, <laughs> I'm going to catch up to you, big sister Susan, who got you all will. the before I got to it. Uh, I mean, I, I kind of, I don't know, like, I kind of think maybe Ramsey did write it. And I say that because the language of it is very Ramsey. It's not even, like, Roos or, I mean, I think with Mance might have, I don't know, it seems to me like it would be hard to imitate that voice um, because it's, you know, it's so specific. So I did feel like, you know, like Ramsey may have written it. And I also kind of felt that way because there was, an earlier section where uh, Roos had kind of, you know, let Ramsey in on a little bit of information, but asked him to keep it to himself, and then he didn't. You know, he immediately starts stomping around and yelling, and we're going to go kill these guys, and, and making a big thing out of it. So I kind of got the sense that maybe, you know, this was information that Roos had, but Roos was trying to keep his cards to his chest a little bit, and Ramsey, you know, went off on his own and wrote this ridiculous letter and let the whole world know about what was going on when Roos was trying to keep it inside the walls a little bit. So I I took it, for the most part, to be real. Yeah, well, and I think that's, a, I, I, I do understand your point about it, it being very irre- irreverent, about it being um, something that seems like something that Ramsey would do, whereas Roos would not. Roos would have, I don't think, would have ever written a letter like that. Um, there is a possibility that it's Mance. I'm going to offer my own crazy crackpot theory, and that is Melisandre wrote it. Ooh. Now, why would that be, Matt? That's a great craziness, but why? To motivate Jon Snow, A, to get him out of there because he was in danger, and B, uh, to fulfill what I, I think that I think that we're at a point where it's been a while since we've had a Melisandre point of view chapter, and I think that maybe she has come to more of an understanding about what she's seeing in the flames uh, than ever before. Well, and, you know, in this chapter, John, 
list the things that she, you know, when, when he's having a conversation with her and he's talking about all the things that she got wrong. And, you know, he says, uh, a gray girl on a dying horse, um, you know, and, and we know that, that um, I mean, with the way that Val reacted to Samson's daughter, uh, Shireen, you know, it seems like maybe that could have been a reference to her, um, you know, the, the daggers in the dark that clearly arrive by the end of the, uh, the chapter, or at least some daggers. I suppose it's not dark out, but, you know, they are all kind of hiding their blades and their cloaks, um, you know, so that could be daggers in the dark. I mean, I think that, that you know, we were talking about the born in smoke and salt earlier. I think that, you know, not only, I mean, your, your point about Melisandre having a little better understanding of her visions, I don't think necessarily, obviously we don't get a Melisandre chapter, but I think that there is some evidence in their interactions for that case. Bubba, what do you think? You're shooting it down? No, I, listen, I don't want to shoot anything down. I, your theory, I think, is wonderful. There's, you know, It has as much merit as anything else. The one thing I would say is that Melisandre keeps trying to help John without you know, going through this uh, letter scenario. She, you know, she keeps telling him, you know, like she's, yes, okay, she thought it was his sister and it turned out to be a different woman on a horse, but throw her a bone, buddy. I mean, she's been right about everything. She, both she and my girl Solis, Queen Solis, are right. You know, hard home is lost, buddy. Give up on it. But he's like, you know, he just, you know, there's a thing called cutting your losses, which John can't seem to do on that. Uh, you know, I honestly think that uh, anybody could have written this letter. Everything makes sense so far. So naturally, George is going to make us wait six years before we find out who wrote the letter. Thank you, George. So nice. <laughs> Maybe less than two. Maybe less than two now. No, I meant uh, yeah, now. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But, but some, more the, evidence, yeah. some more evidence to support your theory, Matt, is that uh, when, when John receives this letter, he then thinks that Melisandre was right in that she said, look to the skies, and he thought, oh, she foresaw this letter coming. So that could be another uh, point in your favor about that. And and something that people do bring up a lot is that the letter calls the Night's Watchmen black crows. And I think that within the books, the only person who had called them that so far was Mance Raider. Or that, I think I'm right on that. And um, so that's something that people point to that could be evidence that it was him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good evidence there, too. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's great. What else we got on this chapter, guys? Well, I think I, I think we need to go a little bit uh, uh, loose just for a bit in that John thinks about a good old Baroque. Uh, he hears people thinking that Baroque might create his own pig army. And all I can think to myself is, please, George, make it so. <laughs> <laughs> totally I'm agree. point out. I was going to point out about the boar is just that uh, the boar is often a symbol of death and uh, just, you know, in literature generally. And uh, George likes to use it in almost every incidence where a boar is around, you know, and King Robert was killed by the boar and boars are served at dinner. There's usually something going on that, you know, you can relate it to. So 
uh, when you see a boar, I think it's a, a good sign of uh, you better watch out what's going on. Oh, that's a good point, too. Good point. And uh, one other bit of levity real quick. Tor- Tormund wants a woman with a mustache. Har, har, har. <laughs> <laughs> Tormund wants anything. You know, Tormund's <laughs> been so busy comparing his size to the size of every other wildling that it's time for him to, you know, get it stretched out so that he can uh, prove it, I guess. <laughs> Does One anybody want to... Oh, sorry, Ghosts. Uh, I was just was going to add that uh, when Lycan said that the uh, approval that John got when he read the letter and, you know, and, and you know asked for backup and got such a, a warring approval of people who wanted to go with him, well, at the beginning when John first came into the hall, one thing he really noted was that uh, the hall was primarily filled with wildings. So I would st- say that that uh, the majority of those people were more likely to be the wildings rather than the night watchmen, which That's good kind of then goes to speak to, you know, whether they were uh, upset or how they felt about him suggesting that that he do this in his role. Yeah, yeah. And 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 that makes you wonder, because of the fact that the, the, the night's watch was maybe pro- possibly much more in the minority there, um, how much of the Night's Watch would help John out, right? Yes. Right. So, but Martin uh, did a great job of showing how John kept just pissing them off this whole time. And, you know, right, he, right. they never agreed with any of his things. Martin did. Let's give him some credit. I'm always so tough on him. He set this up perfectly. He, he gave you all enough, uh, he gave everybody enough clues to know that it was coming but he distracts you with so many other things that you don't think it's coming. Right. Well, and, and plus you, you just question, uh, you know, cause you have the whole night's watch basically voting him in. Right. Right. Um, as, as the Lord commander. So it, it's hard to see the degradation. Uh, I, I think that George did a great job of showing over the course of the chapters of this book, the, the continual degradation of, his leadership ability not not that he wasn't able to lead just that that his own men had lost much more faith in him while he was gaining the faith of the wildlings right oh yeah mm-hmm. you know Tormund believes that the pink letter is all lies so you know we could trust him if we want to well i mean do you trust that he that he did a bear okay great can't trust anybody good point so <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that we've talked about and that people talk about with all this is John really didn't do a very good job of selling Night's Watch on his plans. Um, You know, we talk about the fact that when he was wanting to do this expedition, that, you know, part of it was in his mind, part of what's in his mind with the whole issue of saving the wildings is because he doesn't want them to be turned into white. And he doesn't really enforce that much with the men. He doesn't continue to, to push that to where they would they would uh, understand that and come on to his side. Um, but at the same time, I also think about the fact that when you looked at, look at leadership from um, uh, old-fashioned view back then, I'm not sure that people would expect to have to be educated to buy into something. They just, you know, you're supposed to follow what the leader says. 
it's hard to get a bunch of criminals to follow what a leader says. <laughs> well, this book is about, you know, these, this tandem read is really about a bunch of people coming into leadership positions, Cersei, Daenerys, and John. Uh, do you want to mm-hmm. say which one did mm-hmm. the best, or did they all fail miserably? <laughs> yeah, some failed less than others, I guess, is, is the best way to put it. Um, for me, uh, actually, Daenerys facing off with the dragon probably saved her from a fate worse than death. Um, Cersei uh, has managed to worm her way to probably a standoff. Uh, I mean, she will if Kevin has his way uh, from the, the Walk of Atonement and everything. Well, and from what we read in the epilogue here, if Kevin had his way, she would no longer be in power. Uh, but uh, at least she gets away scot free. Um, and John, well, you know, he's going to be barking. Seems to me. You can't call any of them a success story, that's for sure. Yeah. Can I throw out one crazy thing, which might be too deep down the rabbit hole for us to go down, but Matt, do you want to try to solve Patchface's latest song slash riddle slash possibly prophecy? Uh, Was this the one about uh, go under the sea? We will march into the sea and out again. Uh, possibly dead things at the water and hard home, walking into the water and out again. Under the waves, we ride seahorses, and mermaids will blow seashells to announce we are coming. Oh, oh, oh. Under the sea, men marry fishes, like Ned married Catelyn Tully. They do, they do. Mermaids blowing seashells. The mermaid is the sigil of our good boy, my favorite man, the Manderleys. And, of course, seashells, I'm pretty sure, is a Shoot! Oh, now I blanked on who the who has the sigil of seashells, but they're a northern family. I'm pretty sure. Oh, is it yeah, the spice isn't it the the spicers or or not the spicers exactly, but uh, the family that Rob married into. Oh, the Westerlings. No, that's who it was. You're right. The Westerlings have seashells on their sigil. Mm-hmm. And the seahorses was something like the Valerians or something. I forget who had the seahorse sigil. Is Pat is Patchface just really talking uh, out of his uh, patch hole? Well, I don't think Patchface is ever talking out of his patch hole. Um, I I think that you know once you go back and you look at at things that Patchface says, um, you can yeah. <laughs> again. And this is not to accuse George of of retconning or anything, but he does write in such broad strokes that it's pretty easy to apply some things. Um, are a number of different possible things, which is what makes the read fun, right? You know, because then it, it presents you with a number of possibilities and you have to lay into a theory and decide on it. But uh, I'm betting that that phrase will definitely mean something by the time we finish Winter Winter, don't you? Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. It's tough to make any sense of it right now, though, that's for sure. You got any thoughts on that, Susan? I don't. and it's, uh, I look at all of Patchface's sayings and and puzzle at them, and only a few of them have made sense to me. But I think that that's just because I, I haven't had the right information to interpret them all. But I I expect that pretty much that there's probably something to pretty much all of it. I know. I, yeah, I just don't think he he doesn't just do any of that randomly. You know, he makes it seem like it's random. You know, just kind of stuff, just like the 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 crow. 
year, and, you know, people will read that, and in the early books they'll be like, oh, that crow is just really annoying. But then later on when you're able to really look at it and uh, it, from a different perspective, then you're able to, to, to see that there's a lot to all this. So who makes more sense to you, Mike, the crow or patch face? <laughs> oh, I, uh, I'm going to give it to the crow because I'm <laughs> trying to interpret idiots in real life or in fiction life. So I'm giving it up to the crow. At least he's stupid because he has a tiny brain. But it's Bran. It's Bran. Bran. Bran everywhere. Bran is in patch face. That's what's going on. That's what it is. <laughs> and at least the crow asks for corn about half the time. He just wants to be fed. Yeah, that's true. All patch face does is go, I know, I know, I know. But that's why you got to listen to him, because he does know, right? Mm, yes. Yes, and it's pretty scary. Yeah. Anything else on this chapter, guys? I just, I mean, we've been on this chapter a long time. I want to throw out something, and that is, it's way back when, like a year ago, uh, when season uh, four was ending, people were saying, well, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? And I thought to myself, you know, they'll probably do hard home. And people were like, I, I said this on a message board, and somebody was like, Hard Home, what are you talking about? It's not even on the it's not even in the text. Why would they do Hard Home? And I was like, Well you gotta keep the White Walkers as a constant threat and they don't do much, so why not show Hard Home? And I thought, Well, they'll probably, you know, show Tormund going there. I had no idea they would show John going to Hard Home, which they seem to be doing on the T V show. And so I think that'll be fun for us BRs to see how they create this thing, which uh is as we can tell, it's not happened on the page at all. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Susan, you were going to say something? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought you had started something. Mike, any last thoughts on this chapter? Uh, yeah, I mean, just as far as the kind of TV show, you know, compared to the book conversation, my least favorite character in the TV show all four seasons so far has been Jon Snow. Um, and, you know, that's a... You know, I, I mean, as much as I love my boy Axel and as much as he loves Jon Snow, that's been something that's been a little bit hard for me to say out loud. You know, I usually really respect and agree with Axel about things more often than not. But, man, I have just not been able to get on board with him as far as Snow goes. I just feel like Harrington is mopey and ugh, it just seems kind of put out all the time. I just really have not been enjoying Jon Snow. And now this will be the first time that I've watched the show after reading the books, you know, and I've really come around to the Jon Snow character uh, quite a bit in the reading, and not only the character, but also Harrington's performance. We saw in, you know, the Oxford thing where he talked about having read all of the books, you know, and and really trying to go to the source material, and, and his performance just is a lot better for me and holds a lot more weight for me after reading the books and, and really kind of coming to it a little more from the place that, that Kit Harrington, the actor, I, I think is coming to it from. So I'm actually really looking forward to watching this season with a little more sympathetic eye towards Jon Snow, the character, and Kit Harrington, the actor. And I definitely think that's going to happen because it was present already in the Oxford thing. Already I was taking Harrington more seriously and respecting him as an actor and a thoughtful person more just in this Oxford thing, not even actually watching the show, than I ever had 
the character in the shows before. So, um, you know, with such a strong kind of wrap-up to his character and, and you know, with, I, when we're talking about which of the three of them has been more successful, you know, obviously he's in a tough place at the moment, bleeding on the floor, but I definitely think his, think Jon Snow's decision-making has been better, more even-handed, more future, you know, more kind of uh, thoughtful about the future, thoughtful about the people around him who he's got to protect. I feel like Cersei and Daenerys have both been much more kind of selfish. Cersei because that's the nature of her being, and Daenerys because she's, you know, so far out of her league. Um, and I let, feel like, let me you know, ask John, you something. Let me ask Sorry. you something. Do you want him to do you want him to get killed on the show? Do you want this to be an episode nine or episode ten event? Uh yeah. I think this will probably be episode ten just because episode nine is gonna be so full. Um and that's also another thing you know that I really got out of these chapters uh in whole in, in whole is you know, it's really more clear to me now after reading, even, I mean, reading all the books, but even reading, you know, this tandem read, the way they have set this whole thing up as far as episode nine being the big dramatic episode, you know, like you mentioned earlier, Bubba, Ned Stark is killed and there's a hundred pages of the book left. You know, so that seemed to me something that I hadn't really thought of before is that they really took the whole episode nine philosophy. It seems like they really, that is not something that they came up with as much as that is an interpretation of the books, which I hadn't really realized before, but I think is, is uh, smart and really works. You know, I mean, I thought it worked before, but now I, I feel like it works. Um, they have a whole new level of respect for it in the sense of it works as an interpretation. And I also think that, you know, when they're going in to sit down with HBO and say, no, seriously, the cool stuff's going to happen in nine, you know, that's got to be a hard pitch. Um, you know, it's got to be a hard sell to studio executives who are accustomed to doing things a certain way. Um, you know, so I really like these chapters, you know, and this chapter in particular really brought out uh, respect for the showrunners, you know, and, and for the way the show has been interpreted and created that I never had before. I already had respect for it, obviously, but it just really heightened it to a new level, so... Excellent. I can't wait to watch as a BR, man. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> can I can I respond uh, to the to Jon Snow's uh, portrayal there for a moment? Sure, sure. That, you know, I I understand and I agree. Uh, I think it's been kind of frustrating um, to some degree with Kit Harington in that role. But the reasons why I think it's such is because in many ways a lot of what's really great about John's chapters is that, you know, you're in his head so much. There's so much internal going on that it's very hard uh, to get that across. And I do think that they really, um, his, especially season two, I think they really made some big mistakes with how they went about with that arc because if you, the book with his whole journey when he went out with the ranging and corn half hands, that whole uh, storyline is such a powerful one. And I think they really messed around with that with wanting to make it more about John and Egret. And as a result, I think it really diminished the character's development in on the TV show. So I think 
they're past that now, and as they start to get into the leadership uh, role with him, I think it is going to going to help a lot. I've I've always respected what Harrington's done with it, but I think he's had some tough material sometimes to really get John across. Yeah, it is tough to get John across because, like you said, he is so internal. I think that's another reason. Uh, you know, our friend Ken from Cripples Bastards is Broken Things. He's always about the love for for Sansa, and um, I, you know, Sansa has not been very well received on the TV show. But I, I, I'm, I'm kind of in Ken's camp. I'm like, you know, if you read her, um, you can really, and maybe this is the difference between the, the talent of Sophie Turner and maybe the talent of of Kit Harrington. I, I don't want to comment on the actor talent because I think they're all great. But you know, when I see Sophie Turner in scenes of Sansa, I, I can recall what she's thinking in the books, you know, in a similar scene, you know, when the scenes are the same and whatever. And I can see that register on Sophie Turner. I, so I, I love that uh, personally. Um, it's not as easy with Kit because he's like, he said in that Oxford thing, he said, basically, you know, I, I've kind of taken that character from the first description of him in the books. That's how I auditioned him and that's how I started to play him. And um, that, you know, that that kind of withdrawn inward kind of thing doesn't register all that great on screen to where you can put those thoughts in his head. Um, and maybe the writers will get better at, at him vocalizing some of that internalization as they go along. I think I agree with you, Susan, that he that the showrunners made a, a they didn't do they didn't do the whole North of the Wall storyline very well in season two. Um, and I had problems with it too, because it just seemed like things came out of nowhere for no reason. Uh, and that was before I had read clash of Kings. Uh, and when I finished clash of Kings, I was really mad at the showrunners for what they did North of the wall. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it, that's a great point to make, but I, I do feel like hopefully, um, the showrunners as they've come along, because I, I enjoyed Jon Snow in season four a lot more than I did in, in season well, I enjoyed him in season three too, but I had already I had already started to read uh, uh, a Storm of Swords just a little bit towards the end of season three. So, Matt, uh, Matt, and Susan, do you want to see him now that you've come to enjoy him? Do you want to see him get daggered in the dark this year? Wow, um, I don't think it's going to happen. I personally don't think it's going to happen. I think Hard Home's going to be the big thing for John um, this year personally. But, uh, Susan, what do you think? Um, I mean, I want to see them take the story there, but I agree. I'm kind of thinking it might end up being into next year before they get around to that. I'll be, I'll be surprised if they're able to take him on as much of a journey as he needs to go on if they're doing the whole, uh, you know, tempting him with the, with the Winterfell, electing him to the leader, taking him to heart. <laughs> just seems like an awful lot. What do you think, Bubba? Is, is it going to happen? They're doing so much from these books. I do think it's going to be held. I think it's going to be the last season of season five. If I had to, if I had to, you know, bet money on it, that'd be my bet. Oh, let's let's wow. come on, let's stab them and really make people suffer. Somebody needs to set up a red wedding camera on Axel Foley. For oh yeah, oh yeah, that would be awesome. Keith. If you happen to wake up, don't tell him. We're going to do that. We're going to put a webcam on him, make him watch. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> All right. 
let's move on, guys, to the Queen's Hand. Barrison Tomey spends three days in vigil with Missandei until Quentin Martell finally dies. He meets with the Shave Pate to discuss the reemergence of the Sons of the Harpy before going to a council meeting. At the meeting, Martell and his men, uh, dragons, and the mission of the Green Grace to free hostages is discussed. He then presents a plan of war to be used if the Green Grace fails. He next goes to Sir Jarrus and Sir Archibald's cell to inform them of Quentin's death and gets them to agree to go to the Tattered Prince for help in order to get the hostages freed. Later, the Green Grace returns with news of failure regarding the hostages, and the Shave Pate comes in with news that Maureen is under attack. Susan, you're a big fan of Barristan Selmy. Give me something. I am a big fan of his. Um, well, I think he's you know, stepping up to the plate here. He's trying to um, to take a real leadership role and is willing to go beyond just that um, King's Guard, Queen's Guard role that he's always played so faithfully in the past and uh, maybe make some bold moves here again. Possibly so. Here's the question that I have. Uh, Does it feel like to you, and I don't know, maybe George has always done this and I just haven't seen it, but do you feel like there's like these these kind of like almost like scene fade outs where it's like, and here's what we're going to do, and then it's like, uh, and they discussed it. It's just so that he can reveal what the plan was later on in order to give you a, a sense of waiting. Maybe so. Maybe so. And I think you're probably talking about the uh, uh, where they're having their war council. One thing I thought was fun was uh, that, uh, you know, they talked about Barrison taking away the the thrones that he didn't bring back Danny's bench. He's brought out a, a round table here. They're all sitting around, so he's playing the King Arthur Knights of the Round Table. Very uh, democratic, wanting to hear everybody's voice and everybody's. Uh, even though I think at the end of the day, he's gonna, you know, he's he's going to be the decision maker and decide what he thinks is the honorable or or right way to go about this. Uh, will be he'll be the one that makes those those calls. Yeah. 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 Uh, Mike, what do you think? Uh, is Barrison going to come out victorious on this? And and who, who do you think Dario's among those being uh, catapulted over the walls? No, I think Dario's going to come back. There's been a little too much made out of uh, Daenerys' feelings for her paramour. Uh, I, I, I don't think Dario's gone. I think Dario's going to make a reappearance. Um, I think it's unfortunate for Barristan that he got the, uh, what I'm referring to as the Tyrion chapter of this read. <laughs> you didn't find it interesting? I can't believe that. I mean, it was fine. It, you know, yeah, it's not, that I, not that it wasn't interesting. It's just that, you know, sitting amongst the uh, the other chapters at the end of this book, it, it definitely felt... I mean, I, maybe somebody should have stabbed him at the end, and I would have felt better about it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bubba. I think the conversation he had with uh, with the the guys from Dorn, you know, and, and that's important. Uh, it, it wasn't a bad chapter. It just wasn't living up to the rest of them. That's all. What, what do you think of uh, 
Sir Barristan's plans for Jarrison and Archibald Bubba? I'm upset because it might prevent Dario from being killed. Please, George, give me one good death. Um, yeah, I think my one of my notes I wrote. I just want to read it verbatim. Is Barristan is out of his depth. This is a mess. You know, forget it. I'm going to go ahead and pour one out for Quentin. He finally, finally bit the bucket. Took his last breath. But I'm going to point a spotlight back on Masande, our possible traitor. Our good, I, you know, ever since we read this, and I've been looking at for who could be one of these people, the betrayed, the shave pate knew Quentin had finally died. But uh, if you read the chapter, it seems like only Masande should have known it by then. So is Masande a power couple with the shave pate? Is the power team now Masande and Barristan? And she's pitching ideas like bribe the Unkish. And so that kind of lifts the chapter up a bit for me on a second read. But otherwise, to quote Mando Tori in the chat room again, boring. Aww. Masande is never boring. Well, TV show Masande is yeah, never say, boring. Uh, please, TV show. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it, it is interesting, you know. That's it, interesting. Uh, maybe we go back around. So what are you saying here, that Masande is, is possibly the third betrayal? Yeah, it feels weird. I'm, I'm even using a bit of the show for that because there was that deleted scene where uh, Daenerys tells Masande, don't ever betray me after she kicked out uh, Sir Friendzone. So, you know, there's hints, you know, her brother died as part of Daenerys' kind of uh, move. Uh, we forget about it because her brother has been such a non-character at all, but her brother died in this marine uprising, so maybe she'll be frustrated, and maybe that would be a betrayal. Who knows? I, 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 I'm trying to figure him out. I've got nothing else to do with a chapter that is just interestingly placed because after John and before Daenerys and everything else that's going on, uh, it is kind of, you know, it, it just doesn't have the thrills as, of the others. Mm, yeah. It's kind of like the setup for the big one-two punch at the end, right? Um, yeah, without question. Yeah. Uh, so, Susan, help help us feel something for Barristan here a little more. <laughs> well, with Sandy, I, I do want to add that I have thought that she might be that betrayer as well, but I, hmm. I tend to think that she may do it more of uh, not meaning to do it, like doing something that she thinks is, actually for Danny's benefit, but somehow betraying her through the effort of doing it anyways. Because I think, I think they have focused on her, or George has focused on her a number of times um, in, in ways with Danny relying on her and thinking that, you know, she's that person that, you know, that she can always rely on, who's always there, and that you wouldn't expect anything like that would come from. But uh, she does, and she does, you know, Barrison thinks about how clever she is in here as well. And I also wanted to throw out a uh, a bit of a crack theory here that uh, I don't subscribe to, but I do want to just bring up the fact that some people actually think that Quentin is not dead and uh, the evidence that they, they give to it a little bit is, uh, you know, you don't, he, he, when uh, Barrison looks at him, he can't really tell who it is because he's been burned so terribly. And there's this uh, thing in here about the fact that he's smiling after he died, and there was this big point on the fact that Quentin never smiled, and and that uh, when uh, 
they're talking with the other Dornishmen that when they came across them, that uh, one of them was standing over him with the sword, that possibly there might have been some sort of bait and switch that uh, uh, could just be maybe the tattered prince that's here rather than than, uh, than Quentin. Now, I don't buy into that because I think that, you know, we got that end of that chapter with Quentin on fire and the uh, big man was cradling him in his arms and stuff. So I, I don't really go with that. But there are some people that point to a few things and say, hmm, could this be another thing where it's uh, not what it seems to be? Wow. You know what? You, you, and that, That's great. I mean, more power to you for having that theory. But there are so many theories out there that, that people are saying, well, George is misleading us here and misleading us there, blah, blah, blah. If George took the time to answer one, every one of those things, it would be 10 years before we got Winds of Winter and before we got the, uh, and another 50 years before we got the next book. Uh, so I'm kind of hoping that some things are just are what they are, personally. That's it. And I, 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 yeah, I agree. I, I'm, I really do not subscribe to this, but I have to throw it out there because I've heard it a few times. Yeah. No. Oh, I can definitely see it because, you know, uh, we're still, there, there's still the theory out there. And I don't know if anybody's paid any more attention to this or not, but has anybody, as we've gone along in our read, thought about Euron and, and, and Dario, Dario be, being the same person anymore? I mean, I've been looking through this read, and I, I haven't really found um, any more evidence before it, and looking for it, um, but maybe maybe there's something there that I missed. I, I mean, who knows? That's another one I don't subscribe to, but it's definitely it's definitely out there, and people have you know a list of reasons why they say that they think this is so. But uh, I think uh, you know, you, as you've said, you know, George writes with such broad strokes. A lot of things could be interpreted in a lot of different ways, and I'm sure that some of these things are not going to be what what we think they are. And I think some of them definitely will. But uh, it's just guys, fun guys, to look at all guys, that. I I already poured it out. We can't unpour <laughs> one out for Quentin. He's dead. It's, all right. it's, we'll it's, not going, it's not going back in the bottle. Don't worry, Bubba. We, we're all still pouring it out. We're just, uh, you know, that's that's the way it goes. Mike, what you got, brother? Uh, I just, I really like, you know, Susan's point about, because uh, I hadn't really thought about the possibility of Masane being a, a, uh, a turncoat, but I really like that idea of her kind of doing something she thinks would be helpful, but accidentally making a mistake. Um, and I like that so much because, you know, so much has been made of how mature she is for her age, you know, and, and including in this particular chapter when Selmy's like, that's a good idea. I never would have thought of that. And meanwhile, I got it from a prepubescent girl. Uh, you know, so I mean, it seems to me like it would make a lot of sense to, give her that moment where her youth ends up causing actually a problem as opposed to just being this weird kind of like, yeah, Juno's only 16, but listen to how smart she talks. Yeah, yeah. And and, and uh, the fact that, that Barrison hadn't thought of that or, or uh, thought it was a good idea, uh, I think proves Bubba's point that he's out of his depth, right? Hey, if you can't keep up with a 10-year-old, what hope do you really have? <laughs> We're Barristan bashing, folks. It's the Barristan bash on the Queen's hand. Uh, and poor Susan is just going, oh, I hate you guys. I hate you guys. <laughs> I, I refuse uh, to join in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bubba, you got anything else on this chapter, sir? Uh, 
No, can we please leave Marine? Well, we can leave Marine, but we can't go that far. Well, I don't know. Who knows how no, far no. it is? We're, we're going to go on to the Dothraki Sea and join Daenerys, Daenerys 10. Danny leaves Drogon's lair, remembering all that has happened to her since the fighting pits. Following a stream in hopes that it will ultimately lead to Marine, she contemplates what might be going on there and, of course, on Dario. In the evening, she comes to similar conclusions about his dar that Selmy has, and that night, she dreams of Quaid. The next day, she's been bitten by ants, recalls her brother, eats some berries, and gets sick. That night, she dreams of Viserys. She wakes the next day, having had her moon blood, and ponders the meaning of its return. As she walks, she hears Jorah's voice, urging her on to Westeros. She encounters and hides from a Dothraki scout, and then seeing Drogon calls for him. Drogon takes her towards the main Kalasaur and kills a horse for her and Drogon to eat before Kal Jogo. Is that Jocko? Jocko? Kal Jocko? Anybody? Anybody? Kal Jocko comes riding towards her. Dun, dun, dun. That quarterback from the Patriots trying to get a high five there. Sorry to leave you, Matt. <laughs> I was just like, I was like going, I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name. Uh, I can read it and just think, oh, yeah, it's that one guy that, that pulled more of their Kalasar away from her originally. But that's all I can think of. Um, anyway, what do we got on this chapter, guys? Who wants to start? Can I say, I just said it a second ago, but I'm reading this. And Danny's, you know, she's up there on what she's calling Dragonstone. And she's thinking to herself, how do I get back to a Marine? And I wrote the note, a thousand readers cried no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Danny is, she has this thing and she goes, and yet she was strangely happy. Yeah, she's not a Marine anymore. Hello. She can't even remember the name of the poor girl who got munched on by her dragon. That's how little, you know, she, true thought she's given to it. You know, she's possibly going mad, you know, uh, even in her even in her visions or whatever you want to call them, her brother Viserys is still a douche. So, uh, you know, she's not doing too well. She's bleeding, and uh, when she thinks about she thinks about Dario an awful lot, and then she finally, I mean, finally thinks of Ser Jorah, and she thinks she wants to see and hug his ugly face again. And I thought, oh, that's not nice. Even when she's delusional, she describes Jorah as ugly face. No. <laughs> well, see, she's that's a bully. delusion. See, Jorah is actually quite handsome, and she's just delusional, and she's thinking ugly face. Yeah. So mm. when she's like, when she's you know going through this thing, you know, when she's abandoned here, she's got time to recollect, aka recap all the previous novels. And her big saying is, you know, if I look back, I'm lost. But not if I re- relive all the BS I've already been through in in this you know in this description that George is making me do. And so. Uh, <laughs> You know, she's naked, she's alone. Uh, what should she do? You know, the grass keeps talking to her. Is that her conscience? I think there's a lot to talk about here. And right when we, maybe she's coming to some decisions, who show up at the Dothraki. So those yeah. are my kind of thoughts on this chapter. I like that she's strangely happy. And I think it's it's a relief for her to be out of Marine. And I comically, you know, I've joked enough about this. I think it's her relief passes on to the reader. 
I I can't say I disagree with you there. Uh, Mike, uh, any thoughts on, on Bubba's thoughts or one of your own, sir? Uh, I mean, I just, uh, it was a great chapter. Um, I, I hadn't, I didn't, because I, of course, now I hadn't come to the whole sun rises in the east, the sun sets in the east, rises in the west thing that, that we've been put onto here, uh, which I think is, is really great. But I had not actually considered that this was uh, moon blood without having experienced such a thing myself. It sounds like it was described as being uh, much too heavy for such a thing. So I had thought that, I hadn't actually thought that that's what that was. I thought that it was some other kind of purging of some sort, but not necessarily related specifically to the um, prophecies. Did yeah, that, was well, I read it that way? It, that's an interesting point to bring up, Mike, and let me ask you. Is it possible? I mean, she had, she seems to be suffering from dehydration. She's got diarrhea. Uh, what does that sound like? Sounds like the pale mare, does it not? Sounds like Ebola. Oh, I guess they don't have Ebola in SS, do they? I don't know. I don't know. But does they it, do. That... They do, but it's spelled with a Y for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> And it's got an H and a Q and an O in there somewhere also. But I would assume, I mean, because she's been away for, I mean, I guess we don't really know how long she's been away, but she's presumably been away for long enough that if it was actually Pale Mare, uh, she wouldn't, it wouldn't just be happening now, right? I mean, she would have had those symptoms before now. Would she? She's a Targaryen. So presumably she wouldn't have had those symptoms at all. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there's a lot to be taken from from Quaith's dream in this who says, remember who you are. Um, and I don't think she's quite there yet. And I don't think until she remembers who she is that she has, I think that she's still very vulnerable. I mean, what do you make of the blisters? Those seem to be from heat, right? She's healing. Well, there's also, though, the blisters on her toes, which she kind of giggles at because it's the way she walks funny. Uh, and so those, you know, while they're not uh, blisters from being burned, they're still an injury of some sort, which okay. she had not been able, she had not been injured previous to this at all, had she? Well, I don't think that she would be impervious to, you know, like a sword through her gut or anything like that. Um, I think she's she's able to be cut and, and things like that. But the, the thing that I find remarkable about it is, is you come away from, for me, you come away from this chapter not only thinking, well, she's not as resistant to fire as maybe we thought, but she also is uh, possibly, I mean, she's obviously able to get sick too, and we've never seen her be sick before. You remember well, back in A Dance with Dragons when she was first with the Kalazar and riding all the time, you know, how she was getting all those blisters and, you know, from, from you know, being saddle sore and so forth and, you know, her hands and feet and everything from, from that. So I think that uh, you know, she has gone through things where she's experienced different physical problems. 
And okay. uh, so, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me. I think, too, the, uh, uh, the fact that she hadn't really been thinking about her moon's blood for a while. Maybe she hadn't been having a regular cycle, and some people have put forth the idea that perhaps she was actually even having like a little miscarriage here, you know, that it was an early miscarriage of some sort. Oh, She'd no, Dario's boy? Dario's yeah. baby? People in the chat room are saying she ate those berries. What if those were delicious tansy berries? Ah, mm-hmm. oh, tansy. That would ex- would that explain the dehydration and the diarrhea though? I would think that if it was created to if it was a berry that caused a purge, that it could definitely cause purges in that way as well. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Very and good. She's been, eating, she's been eating some very strange things here. Not just the berries, but her whole yeah. diet. Charred horse meat, yeah. Yeah. Not to focus too much on Daenerys' crotch, but it did seem like riding a dragon in a dirty, thin under tunic. That seemed like some awfully soft skin to be squeezing on the dragon's back. I don't. I mean, I don't know how scales work exactly, but I don't. That seemed to me like that would be dangerous. Possibly so. Possibly so. But she knows he, she's pretty good at steering him. Let's give her some credit for uh, for a novice dragon rider. She's doing okay, I think. She hasn't fallen off. She's she does okay at steering there at the end. Uh, I thought she did good. I thought that was an interesting point too. That you know, uh, Quentin pulls out a whip like that's the answer, you know. But clearly, uh, it was the whip to the side of of uh, you know the white one's face that that. Starting started the Quentin barbacoa, so clearly the uh, the whip is not the answer. And I actually thought that was a good point that you know now she, here she is steering him with her hands and legs. Um, it was kind of that it was just kind of another you know notch uh, under her belt as far as her you know her actually supposed to be there and Quentin clearly not. It has been, I think, a good opportunity for her to have, you know, both bonded here with Drogon so much more and, and gotten this experience. And um, I, I see this part here where they're talking about the the uh, uh, Dothraki Sea that is, you know, turning to autumn. The grass was paler than she remembered, a wan and sickly green on the verge of going yellow. Uh, after that, it would become brown. The grass was dying. So there you go, back to that uh um, that the quote seas, again. yeah, the seas yeah. drying up. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. What else do we have, guys? Well, Bob Our... brought up the fact that uh, that she couldn't remember the name of the little girl that uh, that uh, Drogon had uh, eaten, and that's been brought up as as very significant in her mental state because you know part of her time in Marine with her wanting to achieve this peace and chaining up her dragons and all that. She's really focused on and kept that little girl's name as an image for her to be kind of fixating on in terms of wanting to attain that peace. And so the fact that she couldn't remember it now, that it wasn't something that you know, she could, she wasn't holding on to, 
that that may be definitely signifying her her change and her shift from moving away from that position that she's been trying to to do. Can can I say that I Trone in the chat room wrote that she didn't remember the name of this little girl, and what that means is that G R R M forgot the name and he had to deliver the book on a deadline, so he's like, ah, oh, she doesn't remember it either. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Uh, what else we got? I was going to ask if everybody is happy that we're having a reuniting with the Dothraki. Did we miss them? Are we glad that they're suddenly back in the story? Well, this one is a guy that was a threat to her before, was he not? That's right. He he, you know, marched Drogo's. You know, he claimed a lot of Drogo's troops after Drogo fell off his horse. Bad Drogo. So, uh, yeah, she's had some bad beef with this guy. But it has been said over and over and over that the Dothraki respect strength. And, uh, you know, it's pretty hard to come up with a stronger image of Daenerys than her standing there with horse blood on her chin, which we all know they like to eat, and uh, a dragon next to her. You know, so I think that that uh, I was happy to see them show up because I, you know, I feel like the more people she has on her side, the better off she'll be. So far, the only people she's really had that were actually dedicated to her were uh, the Unsullied, you know, and so for her to be able to come back to Marine, not just with the dragon, but also with, you know, presumably, I mean, he did take the bigger army, so presumably this would be enough people to... Uh, take care of this Yunkai problem for good. And, you know, so I was actually happy to see them arrive, and I think that this is going to be good for her. I think she'll probably leave them there, leave them in Essos to rule in her stead. I don't know that they would make a whole lot of sense in Westeros, but I think as far as getting her from here to there, this is a good thing. Mm. You said the four deadly words, come back to Marine. Um. But I guess it almost has to go that way, doesn't it? So do you think that's what she's going to do? Do you think she's going to convince this call to uh, let her lead his army uh, into Marine to take care of some Yunkai? Yeah, and it's going to be super badass because she's going to come back on the dragon. She's going to be in front of everybody, and they're all going to be like, ooh, she's back, and she's got the dragon, and, and that's good, and they're all going to be sharpening their swords, and then here's going to come the Dothraki horde over the over the hill, and and uh, then we're going to really know who's on her side. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I think that's why the, the, the outcome of Quentin's blundering is important, because she's going to return with Drogon, and Viserion and Rhaegal are going to see their brother and her on that, and they're just all going to join up and just torch the whole place. And Bubba will get his wish, because Tyrion will become a, a rotisserie. That doesn't measure up. Finally, please. Even as a, as a meal, he's going to be too small. Yeah, yeah, probably. But he'll still be torched along with right. everybody else in that tent. Now, some of these Dothraki that took the uh, you know parts or, of uh, Drogo's Kalasar with them that she, you know, had really had a tough time with, you know, she had had sworn that she was going to take vengeance on them. So here she is with the dragon, and 
up comes this guy. So uh, I do think that, uh, and uh, I believe George has talked about the fact that she's going back, you know, there's going to be things with the Dothraki uh, here in the book coming up. Um, I think she might be going back and fulfilling some of the what we saw in the uh, House of the Undying where they she had a vision of these old crones coming out of this big lake, which was probably the, the womb of the world. I think she's going to be going back to base those rack. Oh, great. Before she goes back to Marine. <laughs> maybe wow. she'll become the Maybe she'll become the... Uh, the stallion who mounts the world combines all the death racky behind her. Now, Susan, I, I lost place. Did you mention the House of the Undying? Yes, I did. Okay, yeah, because that's what that's what people are thinking, and so that just means she still won't be going to Westeros anytime soon. Good, <laughs> there's nothing happening there. Have fun. <laughs> yeah, I would say. While I do think that that you know her linking back up with the Dothraki is probably a good thing, I don't. I'm not. I don't got a whole lot of uh, hope for uh, old Cal Jacko, Cal Jacko, uh, Michael Jackson, the Dothraki. I don't got a whole lot of faith for him. Uh, I think he may not survive uh, this this reemergence, but I do think that the Dothraki in general will join up, and I think that you know that's kind of based on that whole idea of you know. They didn't want to see Drogo fall off the horse because, you know, then they're all going to keep him moving. Well, it's pretty hard to maintain your your army when you're being chewed on by Drogon. So I think that that's probably not going to be very good for, for the call in particular, but overall I think it'll be good for her. Uh-huh. I agree. I agree with you, Mike. Uh-huh. What else we got on this chapter? Really? Well, if you have something, Matt, you know you can you can pipe up with something. But I, I now, I'm ready uh, for this last one. All right. Well, uh, I don't have anything else. I think we've talked about everything that I wanted to talk about. I mean, is is the dream with Quaith another glass candle dream? Is that what we all think? I hope so. Okay. Not just her, just recalling because she doesn't really say a whole. Quaith doesn't really say a whole lot that she hasn't already said, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was just like new. Yeah. Okay. Well, then let's move on to the final chapter. Bubba is jumping up and down for joy. The epilogue. <laughs> we find Kevin Lannister and the small council taking talking with Ronit Connington about John Connington's takeover of Griffin's Roost. Dismissing Ronit, the small council talk about the situation as well as about Marjorie with Kevin remembering some history along the way. The council also talks finances, Daenerys, Dragonstone, the newest members of the Kingsguard, Cersei, Marjorie, and Marcella. After meeting Kevin, or after the meeting, Kevin contemplates the composition of the small council and the Kingsguard. He thinks more about Cersei and Lyanna and the Lannister past. He then dines with a well-behaved Cersei and Tommen. He discusses Cersei's brothers and the Kettleblacks with her before he is called to the rookery. Arriving at Pycelle's chambers, he is shot in the chest by an arrow and sees that Pycelle has been killed as well. Varys comes forward announcing his plan to sow more discard in the keep so that Aegon may rule before dispatching two of his little birds 
to finish the job of executing Kevin. Oh, wow. So Varys finally returns. Mike, i got to get a first impression from you, brother. Holy jeez. Wow. Uh, You know, I try to uh, take everybody seriously and, and, and listen intently to my fellow panel members. But when Bubba was saying that, that uh, you know, the, the guy with the sores weeping gray pus uh, during Cersei's walk could possibly have been Varys, man, I thought that was ridiculous. I thought you were really trying to just throw me off, you know, trying to, trying to toss me off the bridge. So I had no idea what was going on. But this certainly makes that seem a lot more like a reasonable thing to say. It also cleared up a lot of... Um, why Varys is appearing in in uh, trailers for the new season, but hasn't been in the book. Like I, this, this really cleared up a lot of speculation as far as that stuff goes for me. I, I thought it was a really fantastic finish. I could have you done without more than half of the chapter, but man, that was a killer ending. Literally, <laughs> literally. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anybody impressed by the fact that it's snowing in King's Landing? Just real I quick. love that. I love that. I want the show to start having snow, or at least Marjorie put on some more clothes, you know, in King's Landing. I want to see the effects there. I thought that was very interesting as well. What do you got, Bubba? All right, well, let's listen. Are you promise me, promising me this is the last chapter? So yeah. let's go ahead. Let's pour one out for Kevin Lannister. Let's pour one out for my Maester Picel imitation. Let's pour one out for a lot of people. Uh, I thought it was good. I thought it was great. The small council, I love that the small council now has Randall Tarley on it, it seems like. Or at least he's there in the small council meeting. I think it's great. Uh, I mentioned it drives me a bit batty that Cersei trials in five days. Uh, George, how come you can't include all the stuff we want to see? But, um... You know, Cersei's still crazy. She still wants Tina Merriweather around and her son around. Hello, get it together here. The infamous black cat, which Arya chased back in A Game of Thrones, and people wonder what's going on with that cat. Is it a war? Is there something going on with it? It's around causing trouble with Tommen. Uh, I love this exchange where Cersei says, "It's it's a wise woman who knows her place. And Kevin thinks to himself, I don't like the sound of that. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's just so much good. And winter is here, thank the seven. That's what I say. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, Bubba. I mean, has Cersei really just lost it, or is she just plotting? No. Her saying is a wise woman who knows her place. I'm just like Kevin. I'm like, uh uh-oh. She has been knocked down. She's lost all the power that she always wanted. But she is scheming, she is planned, she's trying to get some strength back now that she can be with her son. She says all the right things. But, you know, let's be honest, this is Game of Thrones. You don't count anybody out until their head's on a pike. I mean, I think it's hilarious that everybody on the small council seems to know who Robert Strong is, but nobody has the guts to say it. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's bad luck for Brienne that the Golden Company has also seemingly landed on Tarth. Small camp council knows about Connington and Aegon, so that's uh, real interesting. Uh, Sam, uh, Tarly's dad, Randall, says, well, he, he just keeps repeating, if it is Connington, if it is Connington. And I'm like, well, if it is Aegon, come on. 
And so mm-hmm. uh, I I thought it was a great chapter. I think it's sad that Pycelle had to go. He was uh you know, he spent this whole book really kind of getting a uh having fun being the voice of reason to Cersei who she never listened to, and for all his thanks, he gets killed by Varys. Thanks a lot. So the fact that Varys, like, just totally endorses the Aegon thing at the end here, and, and of course, the whole thing with Illyrio at the beginning of this book with Tyrion, uh, we know that he's in on this plan and everything, but does this cement Varys' connection with the, with the Blackfire Rebellion more so than anything else, or is he really just trying to, to do things uh, what he think what he thinks is best for the realm. Boy, it's a great question cuz he's about to kill kill Kevin. Why not tell Kevin the truth? You know, hey, I've got this black fire pretender who's going to give you some stuff. But instead they they didn't do that. You know, he he seemingly tells him that Aegon is real. So we shall have to see. So Mike, do you think now that Aegon is real or not? Or do you still think he's a faker? Or what do you think? Uh, I don't trust Varys for a second. I think he's fake. And I think that he is uh, going to be one of the, you know, kind of roadblocks on the way to Danny getting to where she needs to be. I think that this is going to be a powerful, you know, um, speed bump for her to get over. But I don't buy it. And I don't trust Varys for a second. I'm glad to see him come back because he brings a lot of mystery and and drama to it, and I really could care less about Kevin Lannister. So uh, I'm not really sad to see him go, frankly. I'm happier to see Varys show up than than Kevin go, but I don't trust Varys, and and I don't believe him. Um, And I don't think that he cares a lick about the realm. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Susan, let me ask you this real quick, staying on the Aegon thing. I mean, here we see that, and of course, I, I will qualify the whole thing about Barry's whether he's saying the truth or not. He does have two of his little birds in the presence of him, right? He's sending them to finish Kevin off. So maybe he has to put, keep putting the act on about the Aegon thing just because they're there. But uh, whether he believes anything or not, but uh, or whether Aegon is real or not. But in the trailer, Susan... We're seeing Varys definitely point Tyrion towards Daenerys. And here in the book, we're seeing Varys definitely, as Mike put, seemingly at some point is going to be working against Daenerys in some way, or if they were to get married or whatever. Uh, But nonetheless, um, do you see this as a possible being a fun thing about TV show versus book in the future? Uh, yes, I mean, I think this is, we're definitely seeing a diversion here with the whole Barry's storyline, and I believe that what we're getting out of that is that the Aegon part of it is just going to be written out. I don't think they're going to have it in the show at all, and if that's the case, then I think that is a really powerful uh, reason to say that this Aegon isn't, isn't real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that might be actually the case. That might be the case. Yeah, um, sadly, sadly, I I worry it's the same way. the The one thing I'll say is that a part of me thinks you're not going to see this chapter, or at least the varies part of this chapter on the show. I think varies probably in episode ten will end up in Dorne, 
more likely than it'll end up in uh, King's Landing killing my boy Pycelle. So uh, we'll see. Wow. Why would Pycelle go to Dorne? Well, how how if they write out Aegon, are they going to keep the Dornish still in the story? Because the Dornish, Dornish, once again, it seems like their main thing in the story is Arianne going to meet new Aegon, and possibly what the uh, and possibly what the uh, Sand Snakes are doing to cause havoc. But you know, what's Doran's role in this? Does he have a role in this? If if Aegon isn't in the show, right. Now, Bubba, you postulated at an earlier point in our read that maybe Loris Terrell wasn't as wounded as as we all thought. Is Kevin being fooled as well, or or do you think because he thinks that he thinks of Tyrell as as, uh, as Loris as being pretty wounded as well as well? Has he been rused by the by the by the uh, by the Tyrells? Well, I, once again, let me say this, this isn't my theory. I keep mentioning it because I think it's kind of fascinating how people find stuff. But uh, there were things in this chapter that make me think maybe, yeah, maybe Laura's isn't really injured, and then f- flip the other way, like, oh, maybe he, maybe he is. Like, for example, he's talking about, didn't they say, like, they searched the castle for dragon eggs and that kind of stuff? Yeah, and, and they yet, made it sound like he was an active part of that, whereas right, the story yeah, we exactly. heard before was that he was hurt during the assault, right? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. And so is it possible? I mean... You know, who knows? George, give us these books. Yeah. Very good. What else we got on this chapter? There's a lot of a lot of little, little stuff in this chapter, but what do, what do we got? Yeah, yeah speaking they're... of little stuff, do you want to talk about there's six people vying for the Rosby inheritance, and one of them is our boy Braun. Go get it, Braun. Get that money. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he does. Me too. Um, uh, I wanted to bring up the the point about Sosi with uh, um, uh, Merryweather, Merryweather. Yeah, Tana Merryweather. Yeah, right. Tana. Yeah, I am worried for Tana Merryweather if she ends up back in King's Landing. I think Cersei is oh, wanting yeah. her to come back because she's wanting to. Uh, you know, she thinks she got uh, double crossed there, and she wants that woman and her son under her power. That's what I think that's all about. Is anyone? I, I, I agree, Susan. Is anyone concerned? Uh, I mean, obviously, Nymeria is coming back with Marcella, and we think about this Golden Shrouds thing, um, this prophecy laid out by Maggie the Frog. I mean, now Marcella and Tommen are going to be in the same place. Perhaps Marcella hasn't faced her true peril yet. Yeah, let's kill them both. Good point, Matt. <laughs> Well, they'll never two, measure two up for to one, Joffrey. Two for one. Just take him, take him out. They'll never measure up to Joffrey, that's for sure. So might as well not have any well, of them. Uh, yeah, I mean, both these children seemingly are marked for death with this prophecy, I would say. I would say one of the things that I love is, if if I remember correctly, back in that first Cersei chapter, she thinks about her father finding her grandfather, Tidos, with a whore in King's Landing, and then, you know, uh, sorry, in Casterly Rock, and then making the whore march all the way around uh, Casterly Rock and Lannisport in the Newt. But here we hear this story, and from Kevin's point of view, this woman wasn't a whore, she was a candlemaker's daughter, and yet Tywin still made her march around the city, uh, you know, nude as a whore. Nice work, Tywin, you douche. Yeah. Poor, poor girl. 
Yeah. I, was, I wonder was, with Marcella and uh, and Tom and if the prophecy is going to come through, if first they have to each be uh, crowned. So does that mean that uh, Tommen gets taken out and Marcella somehow is crowned before she before she dies? Hmm. Hmm. Ariane did try to put a crown on Marcella and it didn't work, did it? Um, and and theoretically, if Tommen dies, the you know then they kind of can't have to give it to Stannis because he is the next rightful heir. You know, women d- almost don't get a thing here. If I understand it correctly, but maybe, you know, this gets confusing. I have my own theory that somehow uh, Lancel's going to wear the crown for a bit, so we shall see. Oh, interesting, interesting, interesting. Um, and, and, and the fact that Kevin is now dead, does the uh, does the regent thing go back to Cersei? Boy, is that scary. Is that what George has really set up here? That Cersei kind of, kind of lucks her way back into into being ruler for a while. Who else? I mean, the small council is slowly being taken over by the Tyrells, but yeah, it would seem to go back to her. Gary, Mike, what you got, brother? Nothing. I just love that idea. I hadn't thought of that, but clearly, that's uh, that's a good one. Going to have to get past this trial, and uh, she definitely would be facing a small council that would be at cross purposes with her, and a lot more difficult for her to handle. But I think that it's kind of pointing in that direction. Yeah, she could she could tell Tom, and you know, no supper unless you dismiss all of these councils. <laughs> um, but I don't know. Yeah, that that's kind of that's kind of scary. Uh, what else we got? Oh, here's a question that I had. Now, Cersei just did her Walk of Atonement in the last King's Landing kind of chapter, right? So they say here that the moon is full, but it was a crescent moon for Danny. So is what's happening to Danny? Is that actually happening after what's happening here in the epilogue? Yeah, I would I would trust the timeline to be all sorts of screwy at this point. Yeah. Because I was just thinking, you know, this is kind of like just a couple days or or, or, or a few days after, um, after Cersei's Walk of Atonement, right? When this these events happened, it's seemingly yeah. the way. And then, uh, and it, but because it's a crescent moon, I mean, that's a full what half a month difference, right? Two weeks or more. Uh, my moon knowledge is a little slow here, buddy, because it's getting close yeah. to be the hour of yeah. the bat. Yeah. Well, I was just saying it, it'd have to be on one side or the other. Either what happens to Danny happens a, like a half a month before this, or what happens to Danny happens a half a month after. Uh, we need a Z's from the history of Westeros here. That's what we need. Um, but what else we got on this chapter? I was just really. Uh, I'm, was looking forward to hearing what Mike had to say about it, about all these chapters this week. So I think it's been a lot of fun to to get to hear his initial reactions to all this. And there is so much crazy going on in this chapter. So many things that uh, that we get, so much new information that we get told. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's almost an overload of of small information that makes you have to kind of parse through it little by little. Which, being at mm-hmm. the end of our read, it's kind of hard to do, but. 
Um, let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap this up, guys. Let's rank these chapters and then uh, give a final impression of of the the read in general. Let's start with you, Susan. Okay, um, it's, it's tough with these chapters this week. Uh, they are. You know, I do agree that uh, Barristan's chapter was was the weakest one this week, and all the other chapters have so much going on, but they are. Um, they're all over the place. I would go with John's chapter first, just because you know, I've really enjoyed his whole storyline through A Dance with Dragons, and uh, this was quite the ending, and I think it is heralding a, a very important transition for him. And uh, and Danny would be second, and the same thing, I think, where she is going to be starting when they pick back up with her, with the Dothraki, and with everything that she's gone through mentally that it's, again, just going to be a real transition in where she's at. Then I'd go with the epilogue. Uh, so much going on there, and we get such a lot of reveal with uh, Ferris. And uh, and actually, you know what? I'm going to put the queen's hand before the dragon tamer, um, just because uh, I do like Ferris and, and Quentin's story. It's never been that exciting for me, so I'm afraid I'm going to put him last. All right. Sounds good. And Mike, how about you, brother? Uh, I think I'll probably go with Danny first. I really enjoyed her. You know, I really liked that she spent the end of the book alone. Uh, you know, alone other than the dragon, which we've been waiting for her to get on forever. Uh, you know, and just her thought process and how kind of zeroed in and focused it was and and. I really, you know, I liked her chapter, I think, uh, the best. You know, it's it's good to see her getting along with Drogon. It's good to see the Dothraki pop back up. But more than anything else, I really enjoy just being alone with Danny, spending some time with her while she is, you know, remembering who she is, uh, to, to be specific about it. So I go Danny 1 and uh, John 2 uh, because, you know, both because it was a good chapter, I liked how kind of, busy with his day-to-day moment-to-moment life he was before everything changed. Um, but also just I'm giving him that rating overall because of how much my attitude about the character has really switched. Um, and, you know, a lot of the, the reasons why my attitude about the character switched were really present in that final chapter. So John 2, um, Quentin 3 because the dragons are out now and he got what he earned. Uh, Kevin Four, really, I it's tough for me to to pick between Quentin and Kevin, uh, just because you know it's so great to see Varys uh, um, pop back up, but I got to give it to Quentin just because overall I felt like the Quentin chapter was a stronger chapter, and uh, sell me in the end. And uh, overall, I'm really really happy that I read these books. I really appreciate you all being so excited about it and, you know, really encouraging me to actually get involved in this in the first place because similar to Heath, I listened to a couple of the book reader podcasts before I actually started reading the books and it was really listening to you all talk about them and get into the detail of them and be excited about them that really made the books uh, seem like they would be their own adventure, you know, separate from the television show every bit is good, if not better, so on and so forth. I got that from you all, and, and it turned out that you were uh, totally right. So thanks a lot, y'all. 
Well, thanks for being with us, Mike, on that. Uh, we really have enjoyed your fresh takes on everything. It's been great. Baba, your, your ranking of these chapters this week, sir, and any final words about the book read in general? Oh, sure. Well, number one, I want to thank uh, everybody for listening, all my fellow panelists, but especially Mike. We needed that new book reader, a different NBR perspective on these chapters. So thank you so much for joining us on this crazy journey where we would force you to keep doing this math. For the chapters this week, I'm going John 1, Epilogue 2. They both give, they both quench my lust for blood. Then I'm going to go Danny 3, Quentin, and Sir Grandpa last. I would say the tandem read, having read this uh, the way they were released, and then doing the tandem read. The tandem read is definitely a hundred times, yes, the way to go. And even though you haven't asked me this, Matt, I thought I would end up by saying I'm going to rank the five books we've got so far. For my preference, I'm going to Storm of Swords, number one, the best book of them all, in my opinion. Number two, I'm going to Game of Thrones. I think people forget how wonderfully tight that book was and how great it was. Three, I'm going Clash of Kings. Four, I'm going Dance with the Dragons. And sadly, fifth book on my personal list is A Feast for Crows. Wow! Right on. Well, that's an interesting. Uh, that's an interesting, different little twist to put on it. Um, I'm just going to give my chapters real quick. Um, epilogue first, because now things are clearly in total chaos. Uh, <laughs> then, then John, uh, because things in the north are now clearly in total chaos. Um, then Daenerys, because things with Daenerys's body and her head are clearly in total chaos. Uh, then the Queen's Hand, because Barristan with a plan still results in a lot of chaos. And finally, the Dragon Tamer, because, hey, dragons are loose, bound to be some chaos. Um, but it was uh, kind of lame on a second read. Not so bad for me on a first read, but on a second read, not so great. Email from Tessa, uh, who says, this is my third read of the books, and for some reason this time around, I finally started to really appreciate the John Connington taking back Griffin's Roost. This time I read while thinking about a different point of view, and that is uh, John's household servants. They looked at him with strangers' eyes and said, there's such amazing tension in the room. Can you imagine living in a world where you're just doing your job and some stranger bursts in and says, I'm the old boss, I was fired a while back, but do exactly as I say or you will die immediately. And imagine if you're a servant with living fear of what will happen next. The real boss, as far as you're concerned, will try to win back the castle. Now, that will probably entail at least one of the following events. You might be starving under a siege for the next year. You, your workmates, or your family might be forced to stand on battlements for days at sword point while they threaten to hang you, and sometimes do. Your real boss might just storm the castle and take it back. That's a preferable option, right? Oh, wait, what kind of force usually leads the van? The mountain clans, the bloody mummers, or the mountain that rides. That's what kind. These people are ferocious psychopathic killers and rapers. Great numbers of them will be let loose on your home and family at the height of the battle lust. They will know that as long as they win, they will not be able to be held much account for what they do. As just a servant, your odds of survival aren't too good, no matter how real boss, how your real boss uh, takes the castle back. Back. Your only hope, realistically, is that the invader is actually strong enough to beat your real boss's troops before they make it to your castle. Uh, surely the servants know John's story. Juicy gossip about the boss's family is common knowledge in servants' quarters. But 
Oh, they will know he's been a sellsword in a savage land. What, if anything, should they do? This kind of situation must completely rock the whole web of household relationships and politics. When I read it through this lens, all of a sudden the entire chapter takes on a new tone. John, endlessly waxing lyrical over his memories of Rhaegar, is entertaining in its own sort of self-absorbed poetic way. But in my opinion, the, the servant's position is the most interesting. If you haven't thought about it like that before, maybe read through the, that lens the next time you read it. might add a different interpretation. In regards to Cersei's Walk of Atonement, Cersei totally deserved her punishment, obviously. Here's just one example. She packed poor, traumatized, loyal, unsuspecting Felice off to Kyburn on a freaking whim. The stuff seems to go down in its dungeon lab is so twi- twisted and sickening that not only the reader, but even Cersei herself doesn't want to speculate too much about the details. Surely for the act alone, she gets off pretty lightly with this punishment. She is humiliated and loses power. That's about it. So why does it leave such a bad taste in people's mouths? I have a theory that it is because the punishment is so gendered. It is a woman's punishment for a woman's sin. No man would ever be made to parade through the streets for admitting to an affair. We've seen male prisoners paraded naked in the story, but only as slaves and prisoners of war. When this happens, their nakedness announces the power of their captors more than the inferiority of their captives. If a sword is put back in the men's hands, they have had a chance to reclaim their power. Or they have a chance to reclaim their power. Cersei can never reclaim her power in the eyes of population now. It's a very low, gendered, and nasty way to bring someone down, and I think the reader feels this at some level. I think that she was given a standard punishment, like being locked in the black cells and then sent to the Silent Sisters, the way the men are sent to the wall. It would still humiliate her and rob her of power, but we would feel a lot more comfortable with it. What do you guys reckon? Um, Any thoughts on that? Well, I agree with a lot of it. Uh, you know, it is uncomfortable to read, and so many people, like so many people, I was ready for Cersei to get her just desserts. Uh, and I, I think it is the inequality that uh, they're touching on. I think it's a great point. Excellent. All right. Uh, if I can just say, like, I, you know, one thing that, I mean, I study history and, and really enjoy, you know, the idea that, that people – a hundred thousand years ago where everybody is smart and, and weird and humorous and whatever as we are, you know, just in a different situation. But these books, one thing I really got out of these books was, and, and I think that you can really, you can't get this from reading straight history. I think this is a place where historical fiction is really powerful is the idea of putting ourselves into the kind of place of people before us. And, and, you know, it sounds kind of, whatever, cheesy patriotic or whatever, but, you know, these books have really made me appreciate living in a modern democracy, to be honest. I mean, I I think I've said this before. I live in Manhattan, so my liege lord would be Donald Trump. I mean, can you imagine how awful it would be when Donald Trump just decides to come into your job and start telling you what to do all day? I mean, that is just horrifying, you know. Uh, so, yeah, you're making me miss the good old days. <laughs> I think, you know, I think that's a really excellent point about, you know, the Connington chapter specifically. That's an interesting take on how to reread the Connington chapter, but just about these books in general and about the way that, you know, Martin writes kind of this historical fiction. We talked about that. You guys talked about that to me early on about how part of his point was how just kind of pointlessly destructive war is. But I think that point is 
made even more so about aristocracy and about you know the kind of the feudal organization of society and you know, the fact that that Cersei, based on nothing other than her name and her father, can send her off to you know can send Selyse off to the Black Cells and let Tyburn do whatever she wants, and there's nobody there to question her. And when she finally does actually be, be, get questioned, get kind of taken down, it's by someone else who is on her level. It's not, you know, because she had created so much offense to society at large. It's because somebody else came along who's equally powerful, equally selfish, and, and you know, capable of putting that into to operation. So, you know, say whatever you want about whatever president you do or don't like. He was gone in eight years, and, and that's how it went down. So... I think that's a great point. I don't know. Uh, Tessa continues to say, I also have some bubble math that may shed some light on the Frankengregor question, head question. <laughs> Ned's head? No, rotted long ago. The mountain's head? The mountain, the man is monstrously large. Surely no dwarf's head would be large enough to be plausible. Now, who else does Kyburn have in his clutches. I seem to remember that the Highborn, who were accused of sleeping with Marjorie, have been exonerated, but Kyburn still has the rest. The Blue Bard is half mad, but still relatively intact, so we can rule him out. But what about Zalabar Zoe? He was accused and taken into custody, and there is no word of him being released. If he is indeed Frank and Gregor, if indeed Frank and Gregor has a head, I vote Zalabar, or perhaps police as an outlier. Hee <laughs> hee. Um, interesting. Boy, if it's Jalabar's head, Harold's going to write a whole new email. Oh, yeah. Didn't even think about that. Uh, uh, question for the panel. Uh, and I think we discussed this, but I'll, I'll just let her put her, her thing out here. Uh, who wrote the pink letter? Who knows all the details that were included in the letter? Ramsey, Stannis, Mance, and Melisandre. It could have been any one of them. I personally don't think it was Ramsey. Why would Ramsey threaten to eat a heart would he not threaten to flay instead? I could be wrong, of course. Um, and then goes on to say, something that occurred to me about, uh, sorry, something else occurred to me as I read the epilogue, and I'm a bit stumped. I would love to hear you guys talk about it. The other times that I read the end of the epilogue, I was mostly focused on the surprise of Varys, whom I love, popping up again, and the political implications of Kevin and Pycelle's murders. I had thought it was a bit weird, that the children all stabbed Kevin, but I've read a theory somewhere that said Varys may have gotten them to bloody their own hands to ensure their silence about the event. It seems like a reasonable explanation at the time, but now I don't know. This read, I focus more on them, and it doesn't add up. Why does he have so many kids in the room? If they were just regular unchins trained by Varys, oh, if they were just regular urchins trained up by Varys, why did they all seem to have white faces and dark eyes? Were they wearing some kind of mask or disguise? Or does it mean something else? Why do they all seem to be dressed in clothes that are too big for them? What is going on there? Very said he was doing it for the realm and the children. Something hit me when it, this time when I read it. Instead of meaning the human children of the realm, like Kevin took it, could he have actually meant the children as in the children of the forest? It sounds crazy at first, but it got me to thinking. He has all his little birds who give him information, right? Could there be a little literal aspect to that? Whoa. Anybody mm-hmm. got anything? I've never thought of that. I'm going to have to look back at that. 
Yeah, I yeah. love it. I think it's a, it 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 makes you think. That's a, I, I love it. Yeah, me too. Um, and another angle. I've heard people argue that Varys must be telling the truth about his motivations because what's the point of lying to a dying man? But he wasn't alone. All those children in the room were his audience. If they are not simply urchins trained by Varys, but something more, might he have been lying for their benefit? Does this Listen, this? they're not urchins. They're unchins. <laughs> Does this leave us just guessing at his true motivations? Um, so many questions. Ah, unlike Bubba, I really rather have, I'd really rather have George take all the time he needs with the books so that we can get the best possible literary outcome. But damn it, the weight is killing me. Well, there you go. There's Bubba's whole thing. Is the weight is killing you? Um, I've I've loved just about every second of the tandem read, and you guys have opened my eyes to so much more about the books that I wouldn't have otherwise picked up on. And I have to give a big shout out to Harold. His Westerosi smackdowns and intelligent feedback have been great fun, too. Can't wait to watch season five with you all. All right. Thank you, Tessa. Uh, sorry, guys. I'll try and go through this one a little more quickly. Uh, email from Sue. Maybe someone has already written about this, but just in case, the knight in silver scales could be Jamie. Um, the description of him from the tourney in Hall is one of Ned's fever dreams, I had just finished listening to your last show last night and listened to another great podcast, Radio Westeros. I know you guys are wicked busy, but they are doing a fantastic job. Their Brotherhood Without Banners episode is wicked. It was their R plus L equals J episode, and they read Ned's dream chapter with the Jamie reference. And I was like, hey, actually, I know something that the pros don't. Now, this is something that's been happening. I've been getting some emails about this, Bubba. And I think at some point, I can... somehow worded things to where it came to where people thought that we was talking about silver scales in the dream when actually it was just the silver scales that were being handed over by one of Tormund's men to John as an offering, right? Right. I forget. Uh, you know what? It's too late. Everybody go buy these books and read them. Give George more money so he'll be encouraged to write another one. Yeah. So <laughs> my whole thing is, is that, you know, I don't think that that doesn't mean that John isn't you know, that Jamie isn't part of John's story somewhere, although right now it wouldn't seem very possible unless he's going to join him in death, but uh, at least in my interpretation. But uh, anyway, uh, I, is it possible that Jamie's armor could have somehow ended up north of the wall? doesn't seem really likely, but you can't discount it. Um, and we got an email from Taryn about the silver scales as well, who said, I did a search about the term silver scaled armor, and the first mention was in a, chap- a Sansa chapter in A Game of Thrones, chapter 15 to be exact. That's when Joffrey picked on the butcher's boy. And I went back and I looked that up, and it was actually white enameled scales with silver clasps. So I guess that could be interpreted as it, but I didn't take it as meaning the same thing as uh, what was given over on the wall either. Um, email from Al- Alfred, who says, I've been back listening for weeks now. You guys make a great team. I appreciate your analysis and the attention paid to professional audio quality, very professional production overall. Kudos for coming up with a terrific tandem order. It really does work. First of all, Alfred, uh, that is the uh, boiledleather.com's feast order or tandem read order that we've been doing. Uh, It wasn't one that we came up on our own. We just borrowed one, which I thought was the best one to do. Um, Two requests for ideas. Um, he says, uh, 
Mike and Matt should do a Raven brand episode featuring on the lore and specific spoilerific guesses of the future for the tree boy. Uh, and then Bubba, a dunce with dragons, a look at the wasted hours reading about Danny's attempt to at doing anything in Essos when she has three friggin' dragons chained up in a pyramid. Bad mama. Uh, thank you very much, Alfred, for that email. And finally, an email from Harold on the dragon tamer. Okay, at last, we are at the end of this storyline, and I can vent. What was the point of this storyline? When I read this chapter for the first time, I threw a, the book across the room, not in grief, but in absolute frustration with having, subjected, having been subjected to reading this for nothing. Since Quentin Martell died, this storyline is dead and can't go anywhere. Once again, Martin says, made you look. Perhaps someone can figure out that the death of Quentin at the hands of Daenerys' dragons will influence whose side Mar- House Martell takes, but there are so many other ways to achieve this without the multiple pointless chapters that I'm still not buying it. To cause the reader to invest in so much in a character for no return is simply deplorable in my eyes. During my first read-through, I was absolutely captivated by these chapters and excited to see the role that Quentin would play. This is the switch I have mentioned before, because now these chapters I simply skip. This is... If this were some heroic death like Oberyn or shocking death like Ned's, I would get it. But Quentin is just some side character whose death is meaningless. Any future effort that Martin makes to give it purpose will never justify so many POV chapters on this character. Simply put, if you needed the death of Quentin at the hands of a dragon for some purpose, you simply could have had him be the first Drogon victim instead of the little girl. Instead of a sad father you would get his two remaining sidekicks before Daenerys to tell a woeful tale of how it tragically ended. At best, that's the third of a Daenerys POV chapter. I actually think that this Marinese knot to which Martin, that this is the Marinese knot to which Martin re- refers. He wrote this plot line and didn't know how to carry this character forth in the storyline, so he uses Deus Ex Machina of Quentin being slain by one of Daenerys' dragons. Urgh. Okay. Um, I don't know. Anybody have any comment on that? Uh, I agree, Harold. Urgh. Urgh. All right. Uh, on to John. Martin Lee, uh, about John. Martin simply overplayed his hand with the fake deaths, e.g. Brienne, Samuel, Arya, Tyrion, etc. No one is buying it at this point. He simply lost all credibility with the readers on this front. Sorry, Jar Jar, I ain't buying it. Oh, hello, did we just lose Matt? Can't hear me? No, I'm, I'm, I can hear you. Bubba, can hello? you hear me? Bubba, can you hear me? I can hear you. All right. I think we think Bubba. Oh, sorry, yeah. I lost it for a second. You guys are back, my bad. Okay. Okay. Uh, epilogue in Queen's Hand. I actually really like the rest of the chapters. I put the epilogue number one by a big margin, followed by the Queen's Hand as a clear number two, and finally Daenerys. I love the way the epilogue flowed, and I really love the fact that it was a Kevin Lannister POV. I also really love all the Barristan Selmy POVs, including the sample chapters from Winds of Winter. To be frank, I find Barristan significantly more interesting than Daenerys, in fact, I think I find a certain I find a number of characters around Daenerys more interesting than her, particularly Jorah Mormont, 
but also Masande, Strong Belwas, Khal Drogo, and the Dothraki Bloodriders and Handmaidens. Okay. Uh, on Daenerys. Still, this was a very special Daenerys chapter. The show has made me start to dislike this character, and I generally don't like chapters that have a dragging flow to them, but this one is well done, and I remember being captivated the first time I read it. I liked Drogon quite a bit. I was also on the edge of my seat wondering what was happening to Daenerys. I never for a moment thought she was facing death, but I did wonder whether she caught the pale mare or whether she was in fact pregnant and maybe miscarrying. Lastly, found by Call Jocko, sent my brain into a tizzy speculating as to what might come next. My assumption has always been that the sight of her with this massive dragon will make the Kalasars hers again. I'm not sure whether Jocko survives this encounter, and Danny has already promised one day to kill Kyle Pono. If she kills them both, she could easily find her way back to Marine at the head of a 50,000-strong Kalasar. Uh, Jocko left the dying Kyle Cal- Drogo with 20,000, and Pono with 30,000. Uh, Danny may well be on her way to uniting all of the Kalasars, or at least Kyle Drogo's Kalasar of 100,000. If we reset and look at the force that Daenerys may be commanding, it is astounding. 10,000 unsullied plus thousands of unsullied in training, the knights that Barristan is training, multiple free companies, including the second sons of Tyrion can turn them, 100,000 Dothraki, possibly the Iron Fleet under Victarion, and all the slave fighters she's freed. I think Daenerys will have no problem taking Westeros. However, I strongly suspect that Daenerys will conquer Westeros and then cede rule to someone else so that she can return to rule Essos, most likely from Bravos with her headquarters established in the house with the red door. Bubba's ears are perking up. Or not. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I, 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 Harold, keep going. All right. Uh, well, that, that's, it with the, that's it with his comments about the chapters. One last death match. Oh, here we uh, go. Yeah, here we go. Uh, first, a fatal three-way. Let's start with you, Mike. Lady Olena, the Queen of Thorns, versus Master, Maester Pycelle versus Craster. Equal weapons, equal armor, no outside interference, and magic is not a factor. Craster all the way, dude. That guy has no uh, morals, no... Uh, no uh, no hesitation. I'll give it to Craster. Craster, what do you say, Susan? Craster with Elena and who? Craster, Lady Elena, and Maester Picel. Oh. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go Craster, too. And Bubba? Let's make it a sweep for good old Uncle Craster. He'll kill him by stench. <laughs> <laughs> He's a godly man. Uh, Aaron Dampere versus Lancel Lannister. Bubba. Oh, boy. I hate the Greyjoys. Give me my boy Lancel. Lancel, the the more pious of the two, huh? Uh, Susan. Uh, you know, Lancel's not very healthy lately, but he does have all that armor, and so, yeah, I'll go with Lancel, too. So, Mike, any dissent, or do you concur? No, I'm going to give it to Dev here because all he's got to do is toss a guy in the water. So I'm giving it up to the drowned god on this one. Right on, right on. I would have gone with Dampere myself, but that would have ended up in a tie. Um, Egret versus Obara Sand. 
Ooh, tough one. Susan. Uh, um, I'm going to go with Obara. I think she's just a lot physically stronger. Right on. Mike. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go old school and shout out to Grit. Uh, I think she's, uh, I think she's wily. Right on, Bubba. You get the tiebreaker. Uh, I'm gonna go with somebody who uh, loves Jin Snu. Give me a Grit. <laughs> All right, all right. Uh, Littlefinger versus Melisandre. Let's start with you, Mike. Oh man. Uh, I'm going with Melisandre on that one. I'm not sure why, but I feel like she's got, uh, I feel like there's more of her history that we're not aware of. So there might have been some, some Dirk training in her background. Gotcha. All right. Bubba, what do you think? I never say no to Melisandre. Oh, Susan, do you concur? Yes, I concur. It'd be a sweep. Uh, sweep and the Hound versus the Great John Umber. Uh, let's start with you, Bubba. <laughs> the Hound, your meat is bloody tough. <laughs> Give me the Great John. Yeah, I was gonna say. Uh, how about you, Susan? Well, uh, I'm especially if it's like post him getting injured, I'll go with Great John too. Mm, okay, and Mike. Uh, I'm going to toss this tiebreaker to you, Matt. What? Oh, uh, well, I would have, I would have, uh, I would have gone the hound myself. Well, make it so. Make it so. Uh, Sir Raleigh Duckfield <laughs> versus one-handed Jamie. Uh, Susan. Oh dear. Uh, yeah, Jamie's been getting some practice in, but Raleigh. Trained Aegon. I'll go with Raleigh because uh, Jamie just, you know, I don't think he hasn't gotten that, that left hand down yet. That's it, Mike. Uh, I'm going to go with Jamie on this one. I think he's been doing some some good training. Maybe not with a sword, maybe with like a, a mace. But yeah, go on with Jamie. Oh, Bubba, you get to tie the, you get to break the tie. I'm having Jamie kill uh, Harold for reminding us of who? Sir Raleigh Duck. Duck. What, who? <laughs> that was like 800 pages ago, Harold, please. <laughs> uh, Gilly versus Sansa Stark. Oh, man, these are just mean. Uh, Bubba, go. I never say no to Gilly. Never say no to Gilly. Mike? Yeah, I agree. If she doesn't have Littlefinger coaching her on the other side of the ropes, I think Sansa's out of it. Ken just threw his iPod across the room. Oh well, uh, Susan, what you got? Well, Ken will like me then. I'll go. I'll, I'm going to go with Sansa. Uh, she's uh, she's been learning some skills, and I don't know that Gilly ever has. All right. Well, there you go. Because uh, Ken Ken maybe picked his iPod back up. That's good. Thanks. Um, Hodor. Versus King Robert Baratheon, um, the overweight book one version. <laughs> oh, man, Mike. I think uh, even overweight, I think I'm going to give it to, uh, to Baratheon because uh, I think he's, he's probably a little quicker witted. I think he might see, see it, find, find a hole, you know? Yeah. Uh, Susan. 
So uh, we can't we can't uh, go with Bran walking into him. Yeah, yeah Bran, Bran loves killing people when he's in Hoder. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I think it, it's uh, magic is not a factor. Uh, okay, all right, all right, all right. Then I'll I'll go with Robert as well. Uh, it's a Robert oh. sweep. Yeah, well, and let's face it, you know, without without Bran, Hodor just can't hurt a fly. So you could say Hodor a lot. But um, Two more, real quickly. Uh, Grey Worm versus Strong Bellwas. Uh, Bubba. Give me the guy with a penis. Okay, that would be Bellwas. Uh, let's see, Mike. <laughs> well, <laughs> I was going to say Grey Worm, but I think he's just made a really excellent point. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Susan, concur or dissent? Well, uh, I guess the, I would concur unless this is after uh, Bellwas has been uh, poisoned. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but, oh wait a minute! What if what if the winner gets a plate of liver and onions? Bellwas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely Bellwas. Yeah. Uh, and the final one, guys. Here we go. Uh, Daenerys Targaryen versus Val. Uh, Bubba, you get to go first. Give me Val. I like her character more. Okay, Susan. <laughs> I'm going with Daenerys. Wow, yeah. Mike, you get a tiebreaker. I mean, assuming that a dragon doesn't count as a weapon, i got to go with Val. All right, there you go. And Harold finishes by saying, thanks for the ride, guys. It's, it's been great. Really enjoyed the book read. Thank you, Harold, for all of your great input. And thanks to my guests for coming on and spending hours and hours and hours past their bedtime or past their work time uh, to talk to me about these books. I really appreciate you guys' time. Let's start with you, Susan. How can people talk to you about A Song of Ice and Fire? And uh, are you looking forward to season five, I'm assuming? Oh, I'm definitely looking forward to season five. And I want to thank you, Matt, for letting me come on and do this. It's been a real thrill. I've just had a lot of fun getting to participate. You know, I was uh, the typical podcast audience for a long time, listened to you guys, and always wanted to to, uh, be able to respond right then in the moment so you've given me that opportunity and it's been it's it's been a lot of fun so thank you and your responses have been wonderful and enlightening so thank you very much for joining us mike the captain punishment adventure hour is coming out this week and uh bubba and i'll be a part of that you tell us a little bit about uh captain punishment and how people can talk to you about a song of ice and fire on twitter uh i'm on twitter at fifth column film f-i-f-t-h C-O-L-U-M-N-F-I-L-M. And uh, look for the Captain Punishment Adventure Hour. It'll be out on uh, Tuesday this week. So that is the 24th. And uh, it's got Matt and Bubba and a whole lot of Game of Thrones. And it's great stuff. It's definitely uh, not safe for work. It's, uh, it's, it's adult material. Blue like the Joffrey of podcasts, uh, the recent ones at least. But uh, it's funny stuff, and, and, you know, I think there'll be lots of jokes in there for everybody to relate to, not just to the television show and also the books, but even, you know, specifically podcast Winterfell. So uh, all jokes are, are made with love, at least all of ours. I can't promise that about Bubba's. But uh, <laughs> they're not. jokes are made with love and, uh, and great respect and appreciation for uh, the, the, the crew of podcast Winterfell. So just like, you know, talking about Lost, with you guys, just like talking about the show with you guys, you know, being able to 
talk about these books it just you know makes the books so much more just so much more enjoyable. It makes the show better, makes the books better, makes every you know the whole experience that much better. So thanks a lot for having me, and, and I'm looking forward to the new season and uh, doing some more speculating about Brand Morgan Dragons. I got all kinds of ideas. So looking forward to April 12th. Right on, and you'll be joining us for the initial reaction. So, uh, thanks again for joining us for this book read. So excited that you are now a full fledged BR uh, with the rest of us, and now I can have somebody I can DM to. Uh, besides the gentleman that I love DMing with, because I bug him like three times a day with stupid questions, and that would be Bubba from the jo- Joffrey of Podcast. Uh, tell us what you and Catfish have coming up, and and how people can talk to you on Twitter about the Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire. What chapters are we reading next week? What are we Nine. covering next week? Really? I'm free. Free at last. <laughs> oh, thank God almighty. I'm free at last. Hey, everybody, download the Joffrey Podcast on iTunes. Hit me up on Twitter, at Fit and Trim. Everybody, thanks, Matt. I want to blame Matt. How many hours have I spent reading this darn book? But I also want to thank our wonderful listeners who we do it for you guys. Write in, give podcast winner follow those itunes reviews write in your feedback we need to hear from you thank you guys so much thanks bubba for your time i appreciate it and good luck to the joffrey podcast this season can't wait to hear your podcast on season five it's going to be great and that is it for our tandem read folks i don't have any chapters to announce we're finally done i'm finally taking a week off but we will return on april 6th and for you book readers just as well as the nbrs as i told them earlier anyone gets a chance to call in and preview their predictions or expectations for Season 5 of Game of Thrones. Uh, We will want to keep them uh, NBR friendly, but that doesn't mean you can't express your opinions about the TV show. So feel free to call 724-444-7444 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on Monday, April 6th to be a part. You'll dial 118884 and the pound sign when asked for a call ID. And then if you're not a TalkShoe member, just ask for uh, just dial one in the pound sign, and you're in. I can't wait to hear from you, and I can't wait to hear you give me your predictions or expectations via any other method, which Axel Foley is about to tell you how to do right now. <laughs>